Good morning. It sounds like you're more awake than I feel right now. I'm two hours time warp from Los Angeles, plus I'm not a morning person. I just, I'm telling you this right up front. So I'm going to do my best here. Um, actually, a lady said, Mr. Coco, you must have a great quiet time in the morning. I said, frankly, ma'am, before my first cup of coffee, I'm an atheist. So um, <laughs> I've had my coffee, and at our place, you know, that's Starbucks, so that's like some serious stuff. So all right. But the problem is it's only just now getting into my system. And... Um, Actually, I'm a Jehovah's Witness right now, but, you know, by noontime, I'll be a full-fledged theist. I am already impressed with you guys. Um, this is my second time here. I was here a year and a half ago. I had a fabulous time, and it was memorable because that was the event where Todd did the first talk for that Saturday afternoon, and he, he trotted up on the stage and fell flat on his face. Do you remember that? Boom. But I learned an important lesson about that. That's never happened to me yet. But what he did... He hit the floor, and the minute he hit, he started rolling and flopping around, and then he jumped to his feet, you know, like, I meant to do that. That felt good, you know, one of those things. I thought, what a recovery, man. This guy is really, well, I was going to say fast on his feet, but he's clumsy on his feet, but he's fast getting up once he falls down. So that was my, uh, my first exposure to Watermark. But I had a fabulous time there, and I'm already impressed with you guys because, look, at this room is almost full. Wow. You all were here on time. Wow. All right. You got note paper in front of you. You got Bibles almost in front of every single person. That impresses me because it tells me that you're really serious. Now, just so you know, we're not going to be doing a Bible study here. I'm glad you have your Bibles here, and you'll probably make reference to them here and again, but I don't cite a lot of passages. Uh, so it's not a Bible study. I'm talking about... Principles of engagement that allow us to get biblical truth before people in a persuasive fashion. And let me, let me just make a promise to you. Uh, I'll, I'll, let me offer uh, an expectation, probably more than a promise at this particular point. Because, and, and, it's, and it's, the expectation I have is the next whatever four hours that we spend together is going to really rock your boat in a good way or as some people put it to me, it's going to change your life. Now, I don't say that because I know what God is going to do from this session on in the future. I know this because what of people who have told me that they've read the material or gone to a course or started employing this stuff in their day-to-day -day interaction with people who don't share their convictions, they have told me, this has changed everything. My life is completely different. Finally, I've gotten away from a different way of engagement that just caused trouble. And now I've learned a way of engagement that, as I put it in the book, is more like diplomacy than D-Day, all right? And this has made their lives, in terms of their involvement with people who, who are not followers of Christ, so much easier that they actually look forward to the conversations instead of dreading them. And since that's happened to so many people in the past, and this has been my own experience in the last 25 years of using this material, and I just, I'll tell you about a conversation uh, I had on the plane coming into Dallas yesterday, in which I employed my game plan and it worked out in a very uh, fruitful way. Uh, it's based on that kind of stuff that I just want to increase your expectations about what is, uh, what's going to happen over the next, say, five hours, four or five hours. Uh, this all presumes, though, you pay attention, you're taking notes, you, you, that I teach well and that you put this stuff into play. But I've already got good signs on that with you guys. 
that you're already in play here and you're alert and attentive and you've got your Starbucks and so we're ready to rock and roll. Uh, I teach at a lot of uh, uh, conferences that, like we did a year and a half ago here, where you got a lot of the smart guys that come. And I think Ravi Zacharias was there and William Lane Craig and Dan Wallace and, I mean, the smart guys, you know. And they asked me to come to these kinds of things. And lots of times what I end up doing, with the, well, let me back up and put it this way. The smart guys do a lot of good, but they do some damage too. And here's the damage they do. They give you lots of information that's really vital but then you don't have a way of getting the information in play. And it's like the guy in the Far Side cartoon, you know, he's in like math class or whatever, and you see all the equations on the board, and he raises his hand, and he says, Professor, could I please be excused? My brain is full. And that's the way you feel after a day or two of listening to the smart guys. So I get asked to come in and usually do the final plenary session, and I talk in a very abbreviated form about what we're going to be able to spend a little bit more time on today, about the missing piece, that, that missing bridge from the content to the conversation, that missing connection between the scholarship and the relationship. And that's what I want to I give you here today. Uh, but before we start, it's, it's really important for me to lay a foundation of a certain kind of perspective that I have when I, when I approach these kind of encounters. It's a way of looking at things that, that this itself may be the game changer for you. And it's going to influence everything else that I do. I have completely changed my goal with regards to conversations I have with non-Christians. And the, the, the old goal is basically evangelism, go for the gold, get people to receive Christ, bring them into the kingdom, that's the goal. Well, let me tell you something that you're going to find shocking. Many of you will, and in fact, maybe even alarming, and I've had some very big names in my fraternity professionally push back on me at this thing, but I'm going to hold my ground here because I've seen the productivity it's produced. And here's, here's the shocking thing. I never have it as a goal Whenever I start a conversation with somebody who I think, that I think might lead to spiritual things, I never have it as a goal to lead that person to Christ. In fact, I never have it as a goal to get to the gospel. And this is shocking for some people because if you take an evangelism class, you're told by the instructor after he gives or she gives you some good guidelines of engaging in, in, in whatever in conversation, look, if you only have five minutes just a quick encounter, just get to the simple gospel. Just give them the simple gospel. That's the most important thing, isn't it? And I say, yes, it is. I agree with that. And you give them the simple gospel, at least they've got the most important thing. Now, this, I don't think this is good advice. Not anymore. 15, 20, 30 years ago, maybe yes. Not now. And for three reasons. Here's the first reason. The simple gospel is not simple anymore. You give people the basics of the Christian message. You tell them that Jesus died for their sins, that if they believe in Jesus, they get to spend eternity in a relationship with the Father, and if they don't, they're going to be punished for their crimes against God. You tell them that kind of stuff, people don't know what you're talking about. I told a guy once that Jesus died for his sins, and he said, gee, I'm sorry to hear that. <laughs> Did he get better? You know, it, like... On the radio show, I do some interviews, and uh, mostly it's inter interacting with callers. 
uh, both uh, on my side of the fence and people who disagree, which is great. I had an interview with Holly Ordway, who had been an atheist, now wrote a small book, wonderful book. I guess it's out of print now. I just found out last week, unfortunately, but you might still be able to find it. Not God's type. Not God's type. And it's her spiritual journey as an atheist to Christ, and she had a Ph.D. in literature from Amherst, and she did not know there were four Gospels. How does that happen? That happens when you live not in a Christian culture and no longer in a post-Christian culture, but in an anti-Christian culture. You start talking to people about, about uh, spiritual things in the way that we generally talk about them. And what people hear is the kind of thing that I hear when I climb on the airplane like I did yesterday to fly here. The flight attendant gets on the intercom, and what does the, the flight attendant say? Here's what she says. Blah, 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 yakety yak, yakety yak, right? And no offense to flight attendants in the audience here, but, you know, we just kind of turn it off. It's what you call flight attendant talk. And so we don't pay attention to that kind of thing. We've heard it before. It's just flight attendant noise to us now, okay? Unless you get on Southwest Airlines, right? Because then they kind of, they change it up a bit, right? Hi, everybody. Is everybody here? Okay, sit down and shut up. You, turn that off. Buckle up. You know, we're, then when you get, arrive at the destination, we're here. Get out. You know, it, it's, it's different. And so, you know, you perk up and you, and you take, uh, you're alert to that. But largely when we communicate spiritual things, we are talking in slogans. And we are, we are using Christian lingo. And these are things that people heard before. Something I hope you notice is the way I'm, talking about these things is I, I try to get every piece of religious lingo completely out of my vocabulary. And if you pick up on examples of that, write down the synonyms I'm using instead of like rescued instead of saved, and trust instead of faith, and those people who don't share my convictions rather than non-Christians. Or, you know, these are all ways of trying to brighten the conversation up a little bit. So, so people... Um, they, they, the simple gospel is not simple. There is a lot more what Francis Schaeffer used to call pre-evangelism that is necessary in the context of our culture. And in fact, what people think when they hear these Christ, religious noises coming from us, they, they, they have a, an awkward, unpleasant feeling because of associations more than anything else. And so that's one problem of getting to the simple gospel. Here's the second problem of getting to the simple gospel. In the last eight years, there have been four guys who've made a big hit in the publishing industry. They're known as the, collectively, as the new atheists. Christopher Hitchens, Richard Dawkins, Sam Harris, and Daniel Dennett. Uh, Chris Hitchens died a couple years ago, but the other three guys are still writing a lot of stuff and still having an impact, and there's a lot of other people that are riding on their coattails, which means right now there's a whole bunch of literature that is flooding the market that is, that, that is written by really smart guys who are very well educated, who are good writers, who are witty, and they're aggressive, and half of them got a British accent, so they sound real persuasive right out of the gate. Now, it isn't that everybody has read all their books, but they know they're out there. And so there's an increasing consensus that the smart guys have weighed in and found our side wanting. And, and therefore, there is an unwillingness to even engage this kind of foolishness, which turns out to be wildly politically incorrect in most, 
in most of its uh, convictions, both theologically and morally. And, and so people now have another barrier for them taking seriously the simple gospel you might rattle out to them. Here's the third problem with kind of the simple gospel approach. The third problem is, is if I stood up here and I, and I was going to give you a technique that would allow you to do evangelism. No, I believe in evangelism. I, uh, what I want, it's critical, it's vital, obviously. I, but I want you to think about the way 20th and 21st century Christian people have, have understood how evangelism works. In our mind, evangelism is an event. That is, we have an occasion of evangelism. We go out to do evangelism. We have an evangelistic session where lots of people come, whether there's lots of people or just it's just one-on-one. -on -one. We think of it as an event that we go to and start doing, and the goal of that event is to close the deal. Lead them to Christ. Pray the prayer. Get our notch in our spiritual belt. Um, and, and it's well-intentioned most of the time, that is, we really want people to know Christ, but that's the end game. Go for the gold. If I were to tell you that I've got some techniques that's going to help you to do that kind of thing, to go out and have occasions, evangelism adventures, and try to win people to Christ, you'd smile, you'd take notes dutifully. Some of you would say, praise the Lord, if there's any charismatics in the audience, and then you wouldn't do it. Most of you wouldn't do it, and I know why you wouldn't do it. Because the idea of engaging somebody in a conversation with your express purpose of getting to the finish line to get it, get close the deal, to do the harvest, scares you. And when it scares you, you're unlikely to ge even get out of the seat. You think, that's scary. I don't know if I can do it. Somebody's going to ask me a question. I'm not going to be able to answer. I'm going to get cornered. I I'm going to look funny. I I'm going to do damage. Not any good. I'm just going to stay put and not do anything. Listen, I am very sympathetic to that. I'm not putting that down. I feel the same way. I know what you're talking about. 95% of followers of Christ who even think about evangelism feel that way. And there's a reason for it. And it's a theological reason that is something that's built into the whole enterprise that we have not fully understood that has caused us to look at evangelism in the wrong kind of way. So, let me tell you what that reason is. We think of evangelism and harvesting. The harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. All right? Harvesting is important. But I live in a somewhat agrarian community in, in the, outside of the sprawl of Los Angeles, and uh, uh, also my first five years I spent on a farm. I understand a little bit about farming. Okay? And for any harvest, there has always got to be a season of gardening. Let's just call it gardening, okay? Because probably most of you aren't farmers, but some of you are probably gardeners. You want those royal, really big, ripe tomatoes by, the, by August, in late July? You got to start in May, right? And then you work and you work and you work and you work and you garden and you garden and you garden. And when those tomatoes are ready for harvest, you don't have to pull them, you bump them, and they fall into the basket. Because when the fruit's ready to harvest, it's easy to harvest. And we think harvest mode, that's evangelism. I don't think evangelism anymore. I use a different word to describe my enterprise. And here you can write down a verse, 2 Corinthians 5.20. I'll recite it for you. Go to it later if you want. 
Paul there says, we are ambassadors for Christ. We are ambassadors for Christ. As though God were speaking through us, Paul says, we beg of you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. Paul is a, someone standing in between two parties, a sovereign and the people the sovereign's trying to reach, and he's reaching through the ambassador such that the ambassador is the mouthpiece. Now, when I started thinking about ambassadors, I thought, well, that's a whole different... Being an ambassador is different than being an evangelist. Because evangelists are events, being an ambassador is a way of life. In evangelism, you're looking to close the deal, do the harvest. But ambassadors, to flip over now into the agrarian metaphor, are more like gardeners. They're on 24-7 looking for every opportunity to move the person, whoever that they're engaged with, a little closer, to improve the growth, do a little weeding, do a little watering, move that plant to a point when they are ready for harvest. And look at, and for us who are gardeners, and that's me, by the way, and I have a suspicion it's 95% of those of you out here. And if there's anybody that's listening to what I'm saying right now and you're getting a little annoyed because I'm not putting emphasis on the close, you're not a gardener, you're a harvester, and that's why you're annoyed. It's the harvesters who want to push back, you know. Well, man, I harvest all the time, man. Harvesting is what it all is, it's all about. Yeah, that's the end goal, but it, you couldn't harvest if it wasn't for the rest of us. Now, I want you to think, and here you can mark down John chapter 4, and most of you know what that passage is about. I do. Woman at the well. It's a very basic, common passage. It wasn't until six months or seven months ago that I noticed something in the end of that chapter that I had never noticed before because I was thinking about this stuff. Even though I was teaching this, and I think it was legitimate, I found some help scripturally for it. 1 Corinthians has a passage, I watered, I planted, Apollos watered, God caused the increase, fine. Here's what Jesus says to the disciples. After he's been talking at the woman at the well, the disciples come up, he's talking, the woman goes to Sychar to tell all the people the things that this man had said to her, might he not be the Messiah? She's gone out. The disciples are over at McDonald's getting some Big Macs, you know, because they're hungry. They're bringing them to Jesus. Jesus said, I have food you know not of. And he said, what food is that, you know? Somebody bring him, uh, like, like uh, Taco Belch or something like that? No, I said, he was preaching the word. He was talking to this woman. And then he says this. He says, you say six months until the harvest. Look, the fields are white for harvest. I want to make a point about the context. He is not saying that every field is always white for harvest. This is not a universal statement that every field is ready for the harvest. It's not. He was saying that field was white for harvest, and he was probably looking across the field at all the people in their white robes coming, following the woman who had been at the well, responding to what she had said and coming to see Jesus. And Jesus turns to the disciples, and he says, you are about to what? reap where you did not sow. You are about to reap where you did not sow. Do you see that there are sowers and reapers in this whole process? And then he adds this, so that the one who reaps and the one who sows can rejoice together. 
In other words, we're on the same team here. We're doing the same enterprise. Some people are at the end of the process. They pluck the fruit. In fact, a lot of times they don't really have to pluck it. They bump it and it falls into the basket. It's that easy when it's ripe. The rest of us aren't dealing with ripe fruit. We're making ripe fruit. We're making a different kind of contribution. And when I realized this difference a long time ago, before I saw this passage, but I knew the process, that most of us probably are not harvesters, most of us are probably gardeners, that we are working not as evangelists in the sense of doing the sowing, but we are working as ambassadors for Christ in the enterprise of reconciliation. You know that 2 Corinthians 5.20 verse? In that paragraph, the word reconcile occurs five different times in some form. That whole thing, being an ambassador, is about getting people back with God. But people play different roles. And I think you, many of you suspect that you have not have had a place to play because you couldn't do the... It just didn't fit for you, the harvesting thing. It didn't seem comfortable, and you're thinking something's wrong with you. And the problem is somebody was pushing you into a job description that you are not gifted for, suited for, or designed for by God. You were designed to be a gardener, not a harvester. Now, that doesn't mean gar gardeners don't harvest sometimes. That happens. But I'm just talking about main perspective and main interaction. So when I realized that, I'm an, uh, that my mode is ambassador mode, not evangelist mode, and keep in mind, I'm not putting down evangelism, I want you to see being an ambassador as one of the steps to accomplishing the larger task of evangelism, right? So we all have it, still have the same end in mind. I'm asking for a paradigm shift in thinking here because that shift is going to really affect how you approach the game plan that I'm offering you in just a little bit. So I had a shift in thinking. And so now when I address a non-Christian group, um, I, have, I, I have a very specific way I introduce myself, which, uh, the purpose of which is to let them know what my bottom line goal for that event is. Now, a week and a half ago, I was at Washburn University in Topeka, Kansas. Four weeks before that, I was at uh, Toronto, University of Toronto. In both cases, I addressed non-Christian audiences. Not quite this big. I wish they were, but... Uh, actually, the Toronto audience wasn't that much smaller. And so they have mics and people come up and talk and whatever. So I know I'm going to get interaction and pushback based on my topic. I always start the same way. And here's what I do. I'm introduced. I, I walk up to the microphone. I said, I'm here tonight because my life has been deeply changed by an ancient teacher. His name is Jesus of Nazareth. And 40 years ago when I was a student at UCLA, I began to think carefully about the kinds of things that he said about the way the world was, his claims about reality, and also his claims on my life. And I had heretofore just dismissed that. Now I started thinking about it. And after thinking about it for a long time and asking a lot of questions, I finally came to the conclusion that Jesus got it right. That is, he saw the reality the way it really was and that the, the smartest thing that I could do, I thought I was too smart to be a Christian. And I realized that the smart money was on Jesus of Nazareth. So I decided to step in behind him and follow him. And I've been following him for 40 years. This is what I'm telling the audience. Now, it hasn't always been easy. In fact, it's mostly been hard, but it's been real. Now, I, I tell them, but I'm not here. I want you to know that I'm not here to convert you tonight. <laughs> That's not my goal. I have a much more modest goal. 
I just want to put a stone in your shoe. I just want to annoy you in a good way. Right? So when I tell them that, of course, they all start laughing because uh, they expect the Christian to annoy them. I say, okay, I'm your guy, I'll, but you'll like it. I'm going to, you know, this will be fun. I want to get you thinking because I think that, that Jesus and the way he viewed the world are worth thinking about. I want you hobbling out of here, kind of scratching your head, wondering about something, and I don't know what it's going to be, but something I've said to get you thinking. And if I can put a stone in your shoe, I'm satisfied. You see, then I move on with my material, whatever it happens to be. Two weeks ago was the problem of evil at Topeka, Washburn. And then I do Q&A with the audience. Look, I'm setting this up in a particular way, partly to set them at ease. Don't worry, I'm not going to hound at you. I won't have an altar call up here and embarrass some of you guys. I'm not going to beat you up. But secondly, it takes the pressure off of me because all I'm trying to do is give them something. I don't know what in the whole talk is going to be that kind of thing, but if I can give them something that just gets them thinking, I'm happy. And that's true with an audience or an individual conversation. It doesn't matter to me. My goal is not to win them to Christ. I may not even get to the gospel, given the nature of the circumstances I'm facing. Paul says in Colossians 4, and here's another verse for you Bible folk. Colossians 4, verse 5 and 6. Conduct yourselves with wisdom towards outsiders. Be smart. Don't just barge right in and start blabbing. That's not wisdom. Conduct yourself with wisdom towards outsiders, making the most of the opportunity. Some opportunities you can make more than other opportunities. Let your speech always be with grace. Whoa, that's an important one. Be nice. Seasoned, as it were, with salt. And here's my key phrase for my point, so that you know how to respond to each person. So that you know how to respond to each person. People are individuals. You have a very, very tight little system, and then you just jump in and rattle that system off. There is some value to those. It gets you going. If you're a little frightened, you don't know what to say, that helps. But the liability is you're not able to respond to each person. And I think you're going to see as we move in the morning that the technique that I'm going to give you will allow you to do that. In fact, I'm going to make a promise to you about what happens this morning. And I will fulfill this. The promise is that I will give you a game plan that will allow you to converse with confidence in any situation. No matter how little you think you know, or how timid or shy you happen to be, or how aggressive or learned or even uh, argumentative the other person happens to be. It's a, it's, it is a game plan that focuses in on gardening, not harvesting, Though there may be a harvest, you never know when you bump into a piece of fruit and it's ready to be harvested. It focuses on that, and it takes into consideration Paul's admonition in Colossians 4 to know how to respond to each person. It's a tactical approach. It is an approach that is meant to keep you in the driver's seat of the conversation. Okay. So probably the best thing I could do at this point is give you an illustration. Before I do that, I, have, I just remembered I have to say something else. Because I know there's a question that you're, some of you are asking. And um, I usually say this, I have it in my notes at the end of my talk, but sometimes I forget it. And then I go, oh, 
rats. I forgot to say this, and this is really important, because I know, so I'm going to say it now and get it out of the way so I don't forget it. Some of you are thinking, okay, I understand what he said so far, but does this guy ever get to the gospel? Where does the gospel fit in your situation, in your, your, your system? You, you know, how does that work? When do you get to the gospel? So I've got an answer that's a very simple answer. You could write this down. I get to the gospel whenever I want. Now, I know it sounds a little cheeky, but here's my point. I do not feel artificially compelled to rattle out some words that the person may not even understand, so I could say, well, I got the gospel out in any conversation. Sorry, I got to go. Wait a minute. Jesus loves you and has a plan for your life, and if you believe me, you go to heaven. If you don't, you go to hell. All right. All right. Uh, you got it now. <laughs> your blood's not on my head anymore. <laughs> We're covered. Oh, this is crazy. This is crazy. So I don't feel the compulsion to do that. If the circumstances seem to warrant it, as I am speaking with the person, I will get to the gospel. Sometimes, by the way, I get to the bad news, and I don't get any further. By the way, do you think that that might be a good idea? To get some people to the bad news and let them stew on it for a while? I don't know about you guys, but I've talked to people who God brought them to that spot, and that really made a big difference. An atheist from France talked to him last fall. And all of a sudden, as he's considering Christianity, God enlivened his conscience, and he was crushed under the sense of the guilt of the things that he had done. And it was that being crushed by that that made grace sweet to him. And he was radically converted as a result of his deep awareness of his own sin. Didn't Jesus do that when the rich young ruler says, I've kept the whole law? Jesus said, okay, sell everything you've got and give it to the poor. Jesus wasn't saying you've got to sell everything and give it to the poor. On the very next page, Zacchaeus, the tax collector, said, I'm giving half of my stuff to the poor. And Jesus was happy with that. It was clear that this guy wasn't keeping the law as well as he thought, and Jesus stuck him with it, and he walked away and let him go. And he took the burden of the law that was pressing down upon him. He got the bad news, and he was saddened, and he left him with that. Sometimes we do that. We are not artificially compelled to get to the end of the story before it's appropriate with that person in that conversation. That's all I'm saying. Well, how do you make the judgment? You make the judgment on the fly. You do the best you can under the circumstances. Now, let me give you an example of how this worked out in, in, in my own life. In three weeks, I'm going to be flying up to northern Wisconsin. And I, my, my avocation is bass fishing, which I know I'm probably in, in, in good company somewhat here in Texas. But I especially like smallmouth bass fishing, which is really good in northern Wisconsin. Okay, And they... they, they um, I like largemouth, and I should have brought my poles this week because uh, the weather's beautiful. We're in the spawn period, so go out to Lake Fork, and I'd probably knock them dead. But I, I didn't have time for that. But in three weeks, I get an airplane. I'm heading to northern, Cal northern Wisconsin. We've had some property there since 1960. It's just a shack, really. But I trailer a boat. I've got a, a, a milk run of lakes, and I, could, I can do pretty well in these fish. But ten years ago, I was just kind of getting into this pattern, this spring pattern, and I went out with the local pastor, and uh, I caught on that day, the first day out, the largest smallmouth bass of my life, which is four pounds, two ounces. 
Now, 4-2 in a smallie, that's a big smallie. I've got to let you know I've gotten 8 over 5 since then, and 1 was almost 6, so I've improved in my bragging rights. But I was really happy with that 4-pound smallmouth bass. And so uh, I got a picture of it. I wanted to get it digitized so I could show it up on the screen at that pastor's church where I was going to be speaking that weekend, you know. And I want to show, you know, flex my muscles as a fisherman there. They care about that stuff up in northern Wisconsin. So... Uh, so my wife and I took the film in, and there was a woman working at the desk, and she was uh, doing our paperwork and took the film and, and, and whatever, and we're talking. And I noticed that hanging from her neck from a chain was a large pentagram. Now, a pentagram is a five-pointed star. It's often a, an occultic symbol. It looked like a statement to me, so I asked her about it. I said, does that jewelry have religious significance? She said, yes, it does. Uh, the, the five points stand for earth, wind, fire, water, and spirit. Okay, well, now this is ringing a bell for me. Um, and I said, I understand that about the five points. I, I wondered if it has religious significance for you personally, though, because a lot of people wear a cross, and, and it's just jewelry for them. And she said, yes, I'm a pagan. To which my wife, God bless her heart, standing next to me, burst into laughter. ha, <laughs> ha. She wasn't a cool, calm, trained professional like I was, you know. And now, she caught herself, of course, and was embarrassed, and she said, listen, I didn't mean to offend at all, but I never heard, my wife says, I never heard anybody admit it before. You know, I'm a pagan. She'd only heard the word pagan when her girlfriends would call their kids in, you know, get in here, you bunch of pagans, you know, that kind of thing. So, you know, I'm around pagans all the time, so uh, it's no big deal to me. So the lady was nonplussed. She didn't get offended. She just said, well... Uh, she, she went on to explain it as a kind of an earth religion. And as she's talking about the details, I realize that I'm talking to a witch. In fact, I asked her that. Are you Wiccan then? She said, yes, I am. We respect all life. Okay, that's a basic tenet of witchcraft, respect of life. So I said to her, if you respect all life, then that would probably make you pro-life, wouldn't it, with regards to the abortion question? She said, no, I'm actually pro-choice. Really? Isn't that odd for a witch to be pro-choice? I mean, I'm, I am role-playing this exactly the way it took place. Isn't it odd for a witch to be pro-choice? And she said, well, it is a little bit, but in my understanding is that most witches are pro-life because of this piece of their theology. And she acknowledged that. It is a little bit. And then she qualified her statement. She said, well, you know, I could never do that. And she's referring now to abortion. I could never do that. I could never kill a baby. Now, these were her words, not mine. At Stand to Reason, the organization I represent, str.org, um, we have training material to help people engage in a thoughtful, compelling, persuasive way on the issue of abortion. It's called Making Abortion Unthinkable, the Art of Pro-Life Persuasion. And we make the case that abortion takes the life of an innocent human being without proper justification. Baby killing, if you like, but we don't use that language. And we don't encourage other people to do, do that either. Because we don't want to have an even-handed discussion with somebody and already throw, and throw in a bunch of loaded language like baby killer. And, you know, then people are put off because they think we're cheating using language. We're trying to make the case. But in this conversation, I'm not the one using baby killing language. It is the witch that is using the pro-choicer that is identifying abortion as baby killing. Now, something you need to, I hope you see out of this, and something you take away, if you forget everything else from this morning, if you only remember, I need to listen to what other people say when I'm talking with them about spiritual things, that's a great lesson. Because she just gave me something. 
She gave me permission to call abortion what it actually was in grisly terms, baby killing. Now, I'm not going to argue the point here that's not an abortion. My point is she understood it was baby killing, and that's my view too. So now, am I going to use the word abortion anymore in my conversation as I talk about this? No, I'm going to use the phrase that she gave me, the what? Baby killing phraseology. Shouldn't be controversial anymore. That's her term. She said, I know I could never do this. I could never kill a baby. And then she gave the reason why. She said, I, I wouldn't want something bad to come back on me. So this is like a karma thing. You know, what goes around comes around. I don't know about you, but I think that's a little odd reason not to kill babies. I'm not going to kill any babies. God, you never know what's going to happen to you when you start killing babies. You know, so. <laughs> Maybe it's just a, not a good idea to kill babies regardless, you know. But in any event... I didn't pursue that. I did occur to me, but I thought, no, I'm going to go in a different direction. Um, I said, well, maybe you wouldn't want to kill babies, but maybe we should stop other people from killing babies. And she said, people should have a choice. And I said, now what's the choice we're talking about? The choice to do what on her terms? To kill babies. And so that's what I said to her. You mean people should have a choice to kill babies? And she said, well, I think everything should be taken into consideration. I said, okay, well then what would be something that would be a legitimate consideration to be able to kill babies? And she immediately said incest. Now I want you to see what's going on in this conversation. She is trotting out all the pro-choice slogans, right? But she has already identified abortion as baby killing, and that's the phrase we're using as she's trotting out the slogans. So all of her slogans are justifications not for abortion, but for baby killing. And now it's starting to sound weird. But she doesn't hear it because she's sloganizing. And this happens all the time on the other side, and it happens on our side too. We are just repeating our slogans. This is another thing that's a problem with the so-called simple gospel. We fire our slogans, and we don't know how to explain what those phrases mean. And so she's sloganizing, and she's getting herself into a hole because now i got a question for her. I said, let me see if I understand your view correctly. Because she had said that baby killing is okay with incest. I said, okay, uh, what if I had a two-year-old standing next to me who was, had been conceived by incest? Now, I didn't have any children at this time. I have two girls now. I have a nine-year-old and a six-year-old. And I, my birthday is coming up in a month and a half, and I'll be 64. So I don't know if there's any, like, prayer warriors in here, but I need you right now. Okay? Um, my get, girls are really good girls, and my wife's a good, really good mom. And, of course, then people say, wait until they become teenagers, right, you know. My answer, if I'm lucky, I'll be dead by then. You know, I, I just got it all worked. So anyway, I said, what if I had a two-year-old who had been conceived by incest? That's her criteria, right? On your view, I should be able to kill this child. Okay, now let me ask you a question. Was this a fair application of her point of view? Do you think that I fairly was applying the point of view that she was communicating to me? The proper answer is just nod yes. Yes, it is a fair. Some of you are thinking, is this a trick question? You know, I, can, I can see it. You know, We don't have the trust going yet, man. No, it, yes, it's a fair. But, and, and if it was not, am I giving her an opportunity to correct a misperception? Absolutely. I'm asking her if this is a fair 
application. She did not deny it. It is a crystal clear application. She said baby killing's okay when incest is involved. I got a two-year-old. Can I kill this baby? But it gives her pause. And she stops for a moment, and she's thinking. And finally, she because she's stuck now. That is a good application of her point of view. Hmm. And then she says, I'd have mixed feelings about that. <laughs> And I'm thinking, I hope so. I mean, at least, <laughs> at least mixed, right? Well, she, it was a concession. She was saying, like, well, you got me there. I'm going to have to think about this. So now the line is building behind me, <laughs> right? Now listen to this next point very carefully because it's critical. I'm done. I'm interfering with her work product. I'm done. If I had been of a different frame of mind, I might say, might have said, I haven't got to the gospel yet. Sit down, listen up, maybe you'll learn something. You know, it's like, I'm working on it. We're getting there, you know. But see, I wasn't under that kind of pressure. I wasn't under the pressure of an evangelist. I was there as an ambassador. I was aware that I was part of a team of ambassadors. That, and all of us playing our part. And that even though this woman, this witch in Wisconsin, was my task at that moment by the sovereign arrangement of God, he was, she was not my problem, she was his problem. And I could do what I could do as a good ambassador, do the gardening I was capable of doing in the moment, as the moment required, according to the needs of that individual, and then I could commend that person to God, not make a scene, not be obnoxious, and walk away and entrust her to the Lord, which is what I did. Some people say, what happened to the witch in Wisconsin? I have no idea. I have no idea what happened to about 99.99% of the people I engage because they're my task, but they're not my problem. They're God's problem. He's in, they're in His hands. He's sovereign. I trust that. I've got a team of people here that can pick up where I left off, putting a stone in their shoe, watering the seed, if you want to use that metaphor, until they come to a point when they're ready, if they will be ready, for a harvest. And I guarantee you God will put a harvester there at that time. It happens every single time. This is the advantage for me to be understanding this approach. And notice, by the way, there was no tension in that conversation. There were no lines drawn in the sand. We weren't guarding, defending turf. I'm a, I'm a witch. You're a Christian, you know, and there we are. The battle lines are drawn. When she said she was a witch, I didn't go, oh, a witch, a witch, you know, get out my crucifix. <laughs> Do the Monty Python routine. No, come on. I was taking it all in stride. There's no problem. Actually, in my notes, I have something running, funny. I've changed it a couple of times. Um, <clears throat> I said, she was doing most of the work. That's in my notes. And then I crossed that out because I, I realized most of the work means I was doing some of the work, and I wasn't doing any work. I was relaxed. I was using my game plan. There's no problem. I wasn't upset. Um, so she was doing all of the work. Then I went back to my notes. I said, well, she wasn't doing all the work because she wasn't doing any work either. Neither of us were working. It was not a stressful situation. Battle lines weren't drawn. None of, it was easy. We were just having a conversation. And this is the way I like it. I do not want to get in fights with people. Now, 
at 40 years a Christian, if you knew me 20 years ago, you would realize that's the Holy Spirit. You know, because I was willing to fight about anything from the first 20 years, man, bada boom. Confrontational, combative Christianity, but this is not my, my approach now because I found out this is not productive. In fact, um, I have a little principle that you might want to jot down. It's not just good for engagement with others uh, who don't share our convictions, but it's, it's good in other relationships too. You'll see quickly. Here's the rule. Actually, there's two parts to it. If I get mad, I lose. <laughs> if I get mad, I lose. What if I don't get mad? What if I'm cool, calm, and collected, and the other person gets mad? Okay, I got another one for that, too. If they get mad, I lose. Let's put them both together. If anyone gets mad, I lose. And if you're married, enough said. You're all laughing already. You know what I'm talking about. It's a good plan for that, too. If anybody gets mad, you're going to lose, okay? And so I don't want to get people mad. I'm trying to avoid it. No, it doesn't always work that way. Sometimes I get mad. Sometimes I don't get mad, and they get mad. All right. Well, that's just the way it works sometimes. But I want to try to avoid that. I'm trying to move away from that. I want to engage and defend with gentleness and reverence, for Peter says in 1 Peter 3.15. The Lord's bondservant is not to be quarrelsome, Paul tells Timothy in the second letter. Patient when wrong. So I'm trying to employ these things in my style of interaction. I don't want to get in a fight. Sometimes you do the best you can. They get mad. They're not getting mad at you. They're getting mad at your message. Well, they're getting mad at you, but it's because of the message, not because of you. Well, if that's the way it is, and that's the way it's going to be, a whole lot more coming up real soon. And some of you are already feeling the heat. When we are faithful to the message, we're going to get radical pushback. And if you don't like that idea, I want you to read two things. Matthew chapter 10 and the whole book of 1 Peter. And I got one statement for you. Get used to it. Because if you're going to be a faithful follower of Christ, this culture is going to pound you. And it's not going to get easier. It's going to get worse. You better make, make your peace with it right now. Matthew 10, 1 Peter, the whole book. In Matthew 10, Jesus identified this problem. He said three times, do not fear them. Do not fear them. Do not fear them. We need those three statements more now than we ever have. So make your peace with that. But I'm going to teach you, give you now a game plan that will allow you to maneuver the most effectively that I can imagine. Yes, doesn't mean people aren't going to get mad, but if they get mad at the message and not the messenger, there's nothing we could do about that. Jesus got himself killed because of the message. Notice in that conversation with the witch in Wisconsin that I asked nine different questions. I asked questions to open the conversation. I asked her about her jewelry. I asked questions to gather information from her about or beliefs, convictions, whatever. Um, I asked uh, questions that were meant to demonstrate that there's a weakness or a flaw in her view. Remember, I, I trotted out the two-year-old toddler and asked a question about, by way of application, this is the way your view works. Are you comfortable with that? And, uh, and, and it was an easygoing, relaxed process with no tension. This is the value of using the, the tactical 
game plan. Now, stand to reason, we have lots of different tactics. They're all in the book. Tactics, a game plan for discussing your Christian convictions. A number of you already have it. Be glad to sign it, you know, if you want me to during the break, and I'll be back there if you get, get new books. All of the tactics are covered here. We are going to focus in principally on the game plan that the other tactics serve. You get the game plan, that gets you rolling. The other tactics then come in to help serve the game plan. The game plan is focused on a single tactic. It is the, 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 the tactic I use most often. It is the simplest tactic imaginable to stop. <laughs> I, I just realized I'm getting ahead of myself so, somewhere, so let me just finish the sentence and then. To stop an aggressor in their tracks and to turn the tables and to get them thinking, okay? But before we do that, what I like to do is a little exercise the group is a bit large, but I think we can do this, okay? So we're going to do an exercise, and then I want to hear from you, and then we'll probably take a short break. Let me find my sheet. Uh, we, I call this um, the 10-second uh, the, the window. Let me tell you what's behind this, the idea of this exercise here. In the ten, when, when you are inv out and about at work or at social gatherings or involvements with other people or maybe on an airplane or in a you are you are encounter you encounter situations that might be fruitful for a spiritual conversation of some sort okay and you you think this because somebody says something the circumstances set themselves up a certain way you have a a, a brief moment of time to step in and say something that will then move the conversation in a productive direction. That's the 10-second window. So what I am going to give you is I'm going to give you four different, four different examples, four different scenes. One, two, three, four. Perfect. So each section will have a different scene to work from, work on. And I'm going to have you break down just with in just little groups around you. You know, you can turn around and talk to the people behind you, six, seven, eight, in a group and you can talk. We're just going to do this about five minutes, that's all. But I want you to work through this circumstance yourself before I begin talking about it, okay, before I get into the tactical approach. Now, one rule about this. If you have read the tactics book, you cannot play. If you are on pastoral staff, you cannot play. The reason for that is when the groups get together and somebody in pastoral staff is sitting there, everybody's going to look at you and wait for you to talk, okay, instead of doing the work themselves. Characteristically, that's what happens. So you, you just take your, if you're on staff here, you just take yourself out of play. Church like this, that's probably going to take about two-thirds of you right out of play. I don't know. But, so um, I, I just, this is for the newbies encountering this for the first time. I just want you to struggle with this a little bit. And then I'm going to ask you what you came up with on these different scenarios. And I'm not going to weigh in on them. I'm not saying good, bad, or indifferent. I just want to hear what you have to say. And maybe later on we'll revisit this and talk about it. But this will help psychologically set the stage for the game plan that I'll explain to you just after. Okay, first section has the first scene. Let me read it to you. You're at a dinner party at your friend's home. You might want to jot down some of the details so you don't mess this up. Um, and the conversation ranges naturally over a number of interesting spiritual topics. It's a bunch of Christians, okay? Here's the key part. Suddenly, to your surprise and embarrassment, 
the host's 15-year-old son announces with some belligerence he does not believe in God anymore. It's simply not rational, he says. There is no proof. Uh, no one had any idea that he'd been moving in that direction, including his father. There's a stunned silence. What do you say? What do you say, given this scenario, okay? So that's scene one. Wait, don't break up yet. Uh, let me give the other three. Scene two. It, this, by the way, happened to me. I was sitting across from the young man who said that. I was at that dinner party. Scene two. It's the night of your weekly Bible study group. During the discussion of the Sunday sermon on the Great Commission, a newcomer joins the group. He remarks, well, who are we to say Christianity is better than any other religion? I think the essence of Jesus' teaching is love, the same as any, all the rest of the religions. It's not telling other people how to live or believe. Now, the rest of the group fidgets awkwardly. Remember, this is a Bible study, right? And, but says nothing. What do you say? Okay, basically, a guy comes into the study. Jesus wasn't here to tell us what to believe, but rather to love. We shouldn't be telling other people how they should believe. Jesus isn't the only way, just one of many. That's kind of the deal here. Okay, let's talk about uh, scene three. You're riding in the university shuttle with a friend who notices a Bible in your backpack. Oh, I've read the Bible before, he says. It's got some interesting stories, but people take it too seriously. It was only written by men, after all, and men make mistakes. You try to recall some of the points that your pastor made a few weeks ago about the Bible's inspiration, but you come up empty-handed. What do you say? All right. Last one here, scene four. You're sitting at a car dealer watching TV, waiting for other customers for your car to be serviced. You know how you sit there and you're just waiting for a couple of hours. TV news program highlights religious groups trying to influence important moral legislation. And the person sitting next to you says, haven't these people ever heard of the separation of church and state? Those Christians are always trying to force their views on everybody else. You can't legislate morality. Why don't they just leave the rest of us alone? Now, other people are listening. You don't want to create a scene, but you feel you have to say something. What's your next move? All right? So each of you have your assignments. Just break up into little knots of, uh, you know, six or seven people just right around you and uh, see what you come up with, and then I'll pull a couple of people to see the kinds of things you discuss. Five minutes.
All right, you guys are having way too much fun. Let's just wind it down and turn around and uh, bring your attention up to the front. Papa Todd just walked in, so we got to be on best behavior here. I said, I'm glad you're here. Maybe you'll learn something. Okay, here's what I'd like to hear from, uh, we've got Blake with a microphone, and I want to hear like two or three people on this side who'd like to volunteer who can speak loudly right into the mic, and just tell me a couple of things that you came up with. Remember, this is a situation, we had a dinner party, uh, Christian family, Christians all around carrying on spiritual things, young man, 15-year-old, somewhat belligerently the son of the host, declares he is no longer a Christian or a believer in God, he's an atheist, Belief in God is irrational. There is no evidence. Wow, stunned silence. What do you say? How do you pick it up from there? What's the first things out of your mouth? Who would like to volunteer to offer us maybe collectively what their group came up with? Right over there. Speak right into the mic. Use your, your good outdoor voice, not your indoor voice. Yeah. Hello? Hello? Testing it? Okay, hey. Uh, so we actually have a lovely individual here who shared that she has a 14-year-old son and can kind of speak to this situation personally. And we agreed completely with her that with love, you respond and you, you just say, you know, you're not going to push down scripture down their throat. You just put it back in their court and say, listen, we became Christians. They're born again Christians. And look at the things that God has done in your life so far. And look at your day-to-day -day activities and the way that we rely on Christ, his love for us, that sort of thing. So you're not backing them into a corner. You're responding with just saying, "Understand? I understand. I am still going to love you and just kind of keep it with them. And kind of uh, going back to what you said, putting the rock in their shoes, so to speak. Give them something to think about and go back and uh, reflect on what they can do on their own. Okay, great, great. Anybody else? Yes, ma'am. Um, I think first get them to clarify what they meant by what they just said. I'm sorry, a little louder? Get them to clarify what they meant by what they said. Get them to said. clarify what they meant by what they said. Dynamite. Another one right here. I think the one of the things we would do is uh, empathize or sympathize with that doubt that we, some of us already had that and trying to listen to wh where that's coming from. 
Okay, sympathize with the doubt, figure out where it's coming from. One more. There's a hand. Uh, just that's loud. Um, just ask what their evidence is on their argument. Ask it. them. Yeah, just just ask them what their evidence is. They said there's no evidence. What for their God. evidence is? Well, okay. So what evidence do you have that makes you think? Okay, that regarding the view of rejecting God. Okay, good. Okay, that's number one. Like I said, I'm not really going to weigh in on these. I just want to hear what you worked out, what you came up with. Uh, let's go to number two. And the second situation was um, the Bible study where some interloper shows up and and during the time of having conversations, someone says, hey, well, isn't all religions basically the same? Aren't we supposed to just love each other? That's what the main point of Jesus' teaching was. We shouldn't be trying to tell other people how to believe or how to live. So um, who'd like to respond regarding that one? Right over here. Uh, yeah, a lot of us were talking about, you know, we had basically asked them a question to find out what they're already thinking and then start that relationship with them and also find out, hey, you know, if Jesus said all these things, who did he say he was? Is it true? And kind of go from there, just really forming a relationship with them. Okay, great. Ask some questions, be kind, build relationship. I would ask, what the heck are you doing in this Bible study? But no, it's <laughs> probably, probably that would have been the best maneuver at that point. Who's next? Anybody else want to weigh in here from this group? That's all you came up with? Or, here you go. Here's a bold, bold, brave soul. Mr. Harvard. Are you from Harvard? Going to Harvard. Going to Harvard. Well, we are all waiting to hear what you have to say. <laughs> wow. All the, all the pressure. <laughs> Thank you. What I was, uh, one of the things that I suggested was asking, what do you think happens to you when you die? Uh huh. And going from there, just kind of backward engineering what, what their beliefs are as far as Christianity and, you know, what happens to you? Do you go to heaven? Do you, uh -huh. you know, if you go to heaven, then how do you get to heaven? And then kind of uh, try to understand their, um, their reasoning behind, right. you know, right. what Fle it is that happens. Get them to flesh their own view out a little bit exactly. more thoroughly. Yeah, okay. Right. Yeah. All right, good. Anybody else? We have a Yaley here. Okay, let's go to the third group. The third group, as I recall, was the, uh, the fellow who saw your Bible in the backpack and said the Bible is only written by men, has some good stories, but people take it too seriously, men make mistakes, that kind of thing. Who has something to offer, ma'am? Right here in the white. Well, we thought about reflective questioning, so that the first question would be, well, what led you to read the Bible? Uh-huh. And then the second one would be interesting stories. So which stories did you find interesting and why? Uh-huh. Okay. What led you to read the Bible? What, what did you find interesting? Why were they interesting? We had a hand here, actually, in the front. Did you want to offer? Did you have more to add? Deborah was in my group with David and Kim, and we also said that courage plays a role. And to get courage, the best thing to do is pray for the Holy Spirit to give us the right questions. But Deborah did say the, the questions we came up with. Yeah, that's good. Courage. Let me give you a tip about courage. I'll add something to that. Uh, two other things. Two other things build courage like nothing else. And I had dinner with, uh, with Nathan yesterday. 
He's a serviceman, saw action. We talked a lot about battle. Preparation, action. Preparation, action. You prepare, that gives you courage, all right? If you know your stuff, the more you know, the more confident you're going to be, the more courageous you're going to be. Secondly, you just got to act. You got to get out and do it. You got to open your mouth and talk. And the action itself, you get yourself moving forward, and that action will breed, will, will, will breed courage. It gets the whole thing rolling forward. Okay, over here. Uh, you're at a car dealership and uh, watching TV. There's moral legislation being passed. Christians are involved in it. The guy sitting there watching is upset. Don't these people understand the separation of church and state? They're always trying to force their morality in other people. You can't legislate morality. Why don't they just leave us alone? That's the uh, scene. And your 10-second response. <laughs> Somebody does not want the mic. Someone needs to take the mic. <laughs> All right, so this has actually happened to me. Sorry, can you hear me? Now I can. Oh, because this has happened to me actually dozens of times. I played poker for a living for a little over a decade, so this comes up literally all the time at a table. I mean, if you sit there for 10 hours anywhere in Texas or Oklahoma, this exact thing comes up. So it's always the, well, why isn't it legal in Texas, which is a horrible idea, by the way. And, uh, you know, and I just sit there and it always goes to, well, it's those Christians, those, those Christians, usually Baptists, they always take the blame. And, uh, and so I usually just sit there and my response was always the same, always start with interesting, because everybody always thinks her view is interesting. And, uh, and I was always like, well, so uh, what are some other examples, you know, or, or, you know, so where has this happened before? And what you find is everybody believes, I mean, like, without fail when they say this, they think every Christian cheats on their wife, molests their kids, robs people. I mean, it's like crazy, the views that they have about us, like crazy. So I just kind of let them talk, like a lot. And when one person will start going, another will join in, another will join in. And it just gets to the point that they realize how ridiculous they are. So yeah. at that point, it's just totally obvious to the whole table there'll be about 10 people there and then i just kind of close with i don't really say much but i just kind of close with that's interesting you know and i both my parents met in campus crusade so i said i've known a lot of christians and they're actually like totally understanding really I mean, nice yeah i'm like <laughs> and and then i would say just i basically just close with you know i tell them what i do and they like bend over backwards to be like oh there, you know there's nothing in the bible about gambling and I'm like yeah, no I, I know it's cool and okay so good that's about it. let me uh okay that's great this this is a great response and the, the goal isn't here for us to solve those particular problems and me give you a bunch of the answers because all I'd be doing is giving you information what I wanted you to do is to struggle with a tactical circumstance a real-life challenge that um, that that you may or may not have encountered but it's the kind of thing you do encounter and how do you then maneuver to make good use of that circumstance? And so now you've had to actually think about some of those things. What I would like to do is I would like to, uh, I'd like to talk to you about the game plan. About the game plan. I had mentioned that we have a tactical approach. 
And our goal is to know how to respond to each person, is to adopt a game plan that is easy to, uh, to, to grasp, that you can employ in virtually any situation that will be sensitive to the, the people that you encounter, okay? That will be flexible enough to maneuver, and that will also fulfill the promise that I made to you that will allow you to converse with confidence in any situation, no matter how little you know or how fast-talking or knowledgeable the other person happens to be. And so I want to introduce you to the very first tactic, one of many, but it's the foundational one because this tactic is the game plan that the other tactics serve. It's the easiest tactic imaginable to stop an objector in their tracks, to turn the tables, to put you in the driver's seat of the conversation, which is the tactical goal. You want to be in charge of the conversation. Doesn't mean that you're manipulating it, you're managing it. Doesn't mean that you're coercing people, you're controlling it in a good way. You're directing things properly and not harshly. That's what you want to be able to do, and this tactic will allow you to do that. The tactic has a name, and it's called Columbo. After the infamous Lieutenant Columbo of TV fame, and more and more, fewer and fewer people recognize this TV character. Since he is like 30 years old, you know, and uh, you know, I used to say, quote Marx, and I'd say that would be Karl Marx, not Groucho Marx, but nowadays nobody knows who either of those guys are. So, you know, Lieutenant Colombo shows up at the crime scene, you know, and he's wearing one of these old trench coats, looks like he, he slept in it, probably did, you know. Uh, I got mine at the Salvation Army. Whenever you get something at the Salvation Army, you always want to check the pockets because you never know what you're going to... Wait a minute, what's this? Oh my gosh, look at that. Perfect. <laughs> Lieutenant Colombo always has a cigar, right? Right. And, you know, this is just plastic. So I, this isn't a Baptist church, is it? <laughs> it's plastic, though, so no problem. I hate these things. I just hate them. Anytime I get a real cigar, I destroy it by fire. <laughs> Completely. Don't want it to be a stumbling block to anybody else. Now, Lieutenant Colombo has a pad of paper. He can't uh, write on his paper, though. Why not? He doesn't have a pencil or pen, you know. He's got to bum it off of somebody else because Lieutenant Colombo's not prepared. He's, you know, he's scratching his head, and he's walking around, and he's mumbling to himself, and, and this guy doesn't look like he can think his way out of a wet paper bag. He's stupid, but he's stupid like a fox, right? Because he's got a plan, and at some point of his investigation, he'll pause and he'll put his hand to furrowed brow like he's deep in painful thought, and he'll say something like this. I don't know. There's something about this thing that bothers me. Do you mind if I ask you a question? You know, and he asks the question, right? Gets the answer back. Very intelligent. Yeah. One more thing. And then he one more things him to death, right? Question after question after question, they start getting upset, even annoyed at him. I'm sorry, it's because I'm asking all these questions, but I can't help it. It's a habit, and this is a habit that you ought to get into. The key to the Colombo question, the key to the Colombo tactic, is that the Christian goes on the offensive in an inoffensive way with carefully selected questions that advance the conversation. I'll say that again. The key to the Colombo tactic is the Christian goes on the offensive in an inoffensive way 
with carefully selected questions that advance the conversation. So questions are going to be your game plan. Why questions? Well, questions are polite. You ask a question, the other person answers. The other person is doing the talking, they're answering your question, they're telling something about themselves. You have shown them respect by drawing them out. So you're being interested in them and that makes you interesting to them. Just good manners, okay? Secondly, when you're asking questions, you're getting information in a way that does not put you in the hot seat at all. Because when you ask the question, the other person then does the talking and what are you doing? What are you doing? You're listening, that's right. You don't have to talk. You're buying time with the question. You may be thinking about something, where do I go next, but you're paying attention. The point I'm making here is if you're asking questions, the pressure is not on you. Whatever pressure there might be is going to be on the other person who's answering the questions. All right. So you buy time and take pressure off of you. That's another advantage. Here's the third advantage of using questions. And that is when you're using questions, you're in the driver's seat of the conversation. Now, I've been doing talk radio for 25 years. I do interviews on occasion. I want that interview to go really well. People who write books are not good, always good at doing interviews in public or public speaking. They, they may have a different skill. Sometimes they can do both, not always. So it's my job as an interviewer to help that person tell their story for an audience. How do I get them to do that? I use what? Questions. And I can direct that conversation And if we, with the questions. If we get into a dead end, well, then we can move in another direction. I just ask more questions to keep that moving. If I ask the questions, I'm in charge. If you ask the questions, you're in charge. Even if you're a newbie, even if you're really shy, even if you don't know hardly anything, even if the other person's really talkative, all the better. You ask the questions, you're in charge, even though they're doing all the talking. So questions are going to be our game plan. Colombo is our game plan. There are three uses to Colombo, three different types of uses, and the first two have specific questions that you can employ, or at least model questions that can get the ball rolling. And I'm going to give you those two questions as we get to those points. Once we get to the first two uses of Colombo and the two questions that you can employ, I will have fulfilled my promise to give you a game plan that will allow you to converse with confidence because those two questions are the way to do it. Now, I'm going to give you more. We have more time this morning, and I'm going to give you more. But I want to remind you of what our purpose is, and our purpose is not, we're not thinking evangelism. We are thinking, what's our other biblical word? Being a what? An ambassador, right? We want to be an ambassador, and the way we're going to be an ambassador is we are going to, instead of doing, trying to accomplish the task of harvesting as an impulsive goal, we are going to do the task of, what did I call it? Gardening. Okay, we're going to put a what in their shoe. We're going to put a stone in their shoe. We're just going to try to get them thinking. And so we're going to use our game plan, which entails questions, and there's three different parts to it, uh, to just get people thinking, to move them a little bit forward to accomplish the tasks that we can. Okay, let me talk about the first use of Colombo. We'll do a little quick analysis of that, and then we'll take a break. I mean a genuine stand-up break, and I'll tell you something about the books and the book table and, and stand to reason, then we'll go ahead and take a 15-minute break. Um, 
The first use of Colombo is to gather information. The first use of Colombo is to gather information. Lieutenant Colombo shows up in the crime scene. There's a dead body. That's all he knows. Somebody's dead. There's a corpse. How does he solve the crime? He's got to start gathering information. When you encounter somebody for the first time and the circumstances stacking up like it could be something that would be fruitful in some measure for the kingdom, what's the next step? Here's the next step. You what? Gather information. You gather information. You cannot know how to move productively forward unless you get some intel. <laughs> so, um, two, three, four years ago, I'm flying, and there's a guy next to me. Uh, his name is John. I had actually started the flight out with my Bible in my hand. I was reading my Proverbs or something. I don't remember what I was reading, but I was reading something. I, I want you to know that I don't bring my Bible on the airplane or anywhere, for that matter, as a prop. It isn't like... Anybody got any questions? I'm a trained professional. You know, no. I'm just reading it. If I want to read it, I read it. I don't care where I'm at. If I don't want to read it, I just close it. I don't care where I'm at. I happen to be reading because you can't do work on a computer. You know, when you take off, you've got to put that stuff away. So I'm reading. Now, this is important because I noticed, and it turns out that he noticed it. <clears throat> Later on, we get talking. I'm employing my game plan. I'm drawing him out. I'm gathering information about him. Just making small talk. You know, where you're from, what do you do, and blah, blah, blah. He asked me what I did. And I always try to make it as exotic as possible. I'm a public speaker and radio talk show host and writer. Now, I'm not trying to grandstand, really. I'm just trying to, you know, I want him to ask me more about it. You know, uh, to, to be honest, my, my standard desire is just sit there and be unnoticed and work or read or sleep or watch a movie. But... I, I am an ambassador for Christ 24-7. So I am ready. One of the ten virtues of a good ambassador, we have them on our website at str.org, stand to reason, str.org. The ten virtues of a good ambassador, the first one is an ambassador is ready. So I'm ready. And I tell, Lord, I'm tired. I don't want to mess around. I want to do my own things. But I'm your ambassador. I'm your man. I'm at your service. That's my attitude when I get on the plane. So we end up getting into conversation. I learned a little bit about John. John's not a Christian. He told me that. He used to be a Christian, but he's not a Christian anymore. By the way, do you think that's an important piece of information? Then he tells me he used to be a preacher's kid. How do you used to be a preacher's kid? I said, what, did, you, did your dad die? He said, no, no, my dad's still alive, but my dad's no longer a preacher. I said, really? He said, yeah, my, my dad's no longer a Christian either. Oh, do you think there's any baggage here sitting next to me? Oh, my goodness. Can you imagine if I jumped in there and just started giving him the gospel? What his response would have been? Been there, done that, and it hurt. But instead, I'm just drawing him out. I'm just being a guy who's being friendly. And he's unloading on me, and he's telling me about his experiences. And what's really interesting is that as he's talking, it's like I'm getting a picture that's developing in front of my mind's eye, if you will, of a spiritual topography. I get an idea of the landscape, and I realize there are minefields out there. 
And because I've been talking and listening, now I have an idea how I can maneuver and avoid the minefields. <clears throat> and he says to me, you know, people like you, people like me, what, what's people like me? People like you, you know, he didn't say this, but this is what he's referring to. People like, people like you, people like, who read the Bible on an airplane, you know, people like you. People like you would be really, usually be really mad at a person like me right about now, given everything he said. But you're not angry, and I appreciate that. When I walked off that airplane, I had his email address in my pocket. He had asked me, by the way, is that trust? It, that's trust. He, he asked me, uh, he made a comment about reading something by Bart Ehrman or one of these guys that are publishing books, and he said, uh, yeah, the Bible's been changed, and I've heard some things you can't rely on the Bible. I said, well, I've actually written some articles on that. Do you mind if I just email you a copy of it? He said, fine. Where should I send it? He writes his email address to me. I get to my hotel. I send it out right away. I didn't delay. He gets it. He sends an email back. Thank you. Last I ever heard from him. What, you didn't follow up? I did follow up. I gave him the thing, and I left him with the Lord. I'm not going to chase this guy around the country after he's already been wounded by Christians. Maybe the best thing that I could have done for him, the stone in his shoe, maybe it was that article, and, but maybe, because most of you probably can't send an article to somebody, but maybe the thing that was most important is he talked to somebody that was serious enough about his convictions to read, not be afraid to read a Bible on an airplane, but talked intelligibly and intelligently and with courtesy to him and listened to his complaints. Do you think that's a stone in the shoe of a guy like that? Is that move forward? Absolutely. In my book, it is. Even if he didn't get the article. In my book, it is. But how was I able to do that? Be because I did not have evangelism in view. I had ambassadorship in view. I was there representing my sovereign, and I was going to do the best I, I could with the circumstances I had, and I let him talk. And as I let him talk and I gathered information, I got a little sense of the lay of the land, and that allowed me to move forward. trying to decide when I should tell you about the conversation I had yesterday with the guy. Maybe I'll, in, in part number two, because that detail comes up there too. You want a question, a model question at this particular point? Here's a simple question. What do you mean by that? What do you mean by that? Now, you want to gather information, right? You use the question of some form, what do you mean by that? Sometimes it's just casually drawing a person out. Hi, where are you going? Where are you from? Blah, blah, blah. What do you do? That's airplane talk. But uh, think of the witch in Wisconsin. What was my question that opened up the, uh, the conversation? I noticed she was wear, wearing what looked like an occult, occultic symbol, and so I asked her the question, what do you mean by that? Does that jewelry have religious significance? But that was a what do you mean by that question, right? It was pretty straightforward. I was taking an interest in her. She was happy to answer, and so that whole conversation rolled out because I asked that kind of question. Uh, sometimes people will just make a statement, well, there is no God, for example, that came up in that question. How about this question? What do you mean by God? What do you mean? What do you mean by God? It's just, no God. What, you, what kind of God don't you believe in? It might be that you don't believe in a God who's a guy with a gray beard who sits up in a throne in outer space somewhere. Well, if I don't believe in that God either, so we're on the same page if that's what you're rejecting. It may be that you reject the personal God of organized religion, 
but you're into some kind of God force or something like that, maybe an Eastern deal or maybe a Star Wars deal or, or something, who knows? Um, I mean, that's possible. New agey type thing. Okay, well, now I know. Or maybe they're a materialist. Uh, they don't believe in any non-physical realities. They're like a new atheist type person, total enlightenment atheist. Okay, well, that's different. It, the more detail I get, the more that I uh, am informed about how I move forward. Notice I'm not witnessing yet. I'm not laying any trip. What am I doing? I'm gathering intel. I'm looking at the lay of the land. I'm trying to figure out if there's an opportunity here. There may not be an opportunity, but there may be. And in the process, I'm drawing people out, letting them talk, and I'm learning. Sometimes you're going to get a question like, uh, that is a direct challenge. So the issue of, say, Christianity has come up, and a guy says, well, everything's relative. Now, here is where um, you should not let that particular statement pass without asking a question. My, my sense is that most Christians who hear something like, well, everything's relative, are, go are, are going to feel like, well, now I've got to prove absolute truth, and I don't know how to do that, and so then they just go silent, right? But there is a wild ambiguity in that sentence. It's just a two-word sentence. What word or words might be ambiguous or unclear? Everything's relative. Well, how about relative? Why can't we say, what do you mean by relative? Now, I wrote a book on relativism. There's some copies in the back. So I know what relativism is. The book's title is Relativism, by the way. So. Feet firmly planted in midair is the subtitle, but... But I don't know what the other guy thinks relativism is. I don't know what they have in mind. And there are a lot of times people are repeating slogans from their community. They're socialized to say certain things, Christian, non-Christian alike. But to say, well, everything's relative or all is, everything's perspectival, you know, if they want to quote Nietzsche. It's the same idea. All right, well, what do you mean by that? That's a great question. Instead of taking the responsibility to... What do you mean by that? What do you mean by relative? What do you mean everything's relative? What do you mean by everything? Because when you think about it, well, everything, well, everything means everything. Well, wait a minute. If everything means everything in that sentence, then isn't the statement everything's relative part of everything? You see, some of you are chuckling because you're seeing the problem already. If everything is relative and the statement everything is relative is part of everything, then the statement itself is what? Is relative, which kind of takes the wind out of the sails of that kind of statement, doesn't it, you know? So why can't we ask those questions? What do you mean by everything? Now, when I just talked about taking the wind out of the sails of that objection is because the objection turns out to be self-refuting, taken at face value. This is actually a peek into the suicide tactic, which comes later in the book. Some views are just self-defeating, and all you have to do is see that they're self-defeating and point it out, and all your work is done. But, um, but notice here, though, we are not taking the initiative in the sense of addressing problems. We are simply asking for what? Clarification. We are just gathering information, okay? We are gathering information. Our question is, what do you mean by that? I get a phone call on the radio show. Somebody calls in and says, uh, I need a recommendation for a good book on Buddhism. I said, why? Okay, that's a what do you mean by that. 
How can I recommend a good book when I'm not sure the purpose he wants to use it for, right? So what do you mean by that? Tell me more, tell me more. And, uh, and, and, and uh, the guy says, well, I have a friend who I work with who's a Buddhist, and I want to talk to him about my own convictions, so I want to understand his view. And I said, don't buy a book on Buddhism then. That's just going to cost you money, then you've got to read the book. It's a lot of work. I said, i got a better idea. You grab your buddy, you take him down to his favorite watering hole, you buy him a latte or something like that, and then you say to him, hey, I understand you're a Buddhist. I don't know any Buddhists. I'm Christian. I'd like to understand about Buddhism. Would you mind telling me about Buddhism? Now, what do you think your guy's going to do? Get all offended? No, he's going to sit back and suck up that latte and tell you all about it. And you are going to get a free education. Well, probably cost you about three seventy-five for the latte. But other than that, you're going you're gonna to get it, and you're going to be getting the information about his Buddhism from the guy you want to engage with. In other words, you're building a relationship, but you're in a passive mode gathering information. What could be better? Now, don't jump in on him after five minutes and say, well, I'm a Christian. Here's what I believe. I mean, that would sound like your appointment was disingenuous. No, you want to know what he believes. Let him talk. Let him talk three or four times. It might turn out that he starts asking you, or maybe this turns into a generalized conversation about religious conviction. You'll probably get your opportunity. But you want to listen. You want to get the lay of the land. You ask him about things. I have a, a friend, Nabil Qureshi, who is a former Muslim, uh, who became uh, a Christian after about three years of very vigorous, combative, apologetic interaction with another guy named David... Um, what's his name? David Wood, thank you. Now, when I was in Dallas last time, and this was in December, I met David Wood, and I was with Nabil Koreshi, and there was a bunch of us hanging out after an event, and so we went out to, for refreshments, lattes and stuff like that. Um, <laughs> Somebody had coffee, I think. I don't know. Uh, uh, in any event, um, Nabil has written a book. It's called Seeking Allah, Finding Jesus. Seeking Allah, Finding Jesus. Probably the best single work that you're going to find on understanding Islam and the conversion of an Islamic person. Because there's a lot of theology in there, but he tells his story. So I'm just going to commend that book to you. Fabulously written, and Nabil's a great guy. I met him right after he became a Christian in 2005. And, um, but I didn't know anything about David Wood until I met him recently. And so when I did the interview that you can get on our own podcast at Stand to Reason, this was two weeks ago, um, I talked with Nabil for an hour and I said, how, how did you guys actually begin engaging? Because Nabil was a Muslim apologist. He was raised to advance and promote and promulgate his own faith conviction. And he ran into to, 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 uh, uh, David Wood who wasn't afraid of this guy. And there's some reasons why David Wood wasn't afraid of him because of his own experiences. That's another story. But I said, how did you first start talking? He said, we were both on a debate team in university and we were traveling and sharing a room together. And I walked into the room and there was David reading the Bible. And now Nabil, as a Muslim, had been taught that the Bible had been completely corrupted and you can't trust the text. And this is a standard kind of objection. And so, <laughs> so I saw him reading the Bible and I immediately said, that's been corrupted. So I said, what did David say? Here's what David said. Go on. Now that's a, what do you mean by that, right? That's, that's it. He didn't, get, uh, uh, he didn't get angry. He didn't get his feathers ruffled. He just said, go on. Tell me more. And so he started laying these stuff out. And then David had some more questions for him. Like, for example, okay, so he, 
what parts of the Bible were corrupted. Nabil did not know how to answer that. Nabil was a, a Muslim apologist. He says, that's corrupted. Really? Go on, tell me more. Okay, I'll tell you all about it. I say, all right, what parts are corrupted? These are just, what do you mean by that questions, right? It's all he's doing. Second question, he's stumped. He doesn't know where to go. I'm going to tell you something that happened to me three weeks ago, normal, four weeks ago, normal Illinois, where Illinois State University is at. I spoke at a church there, a lot of college students that were part of that enterprise. I had lunch then with a professor from a junior college, Christian guy, biology guy. And so he gets in conversations with his non-Christian people about evolution and stuff like that. It's their discipline. And he had always been kind of preaching at him about it as he was able. And then he read the book on tactics, and he said, he told me, sitting across at lunch, he said, what I decided to do is to just use your tactical approach. So when I sat down with the atheist, and I wanted to discuss evolution with him, I decided just to ask questions. Now, part of the evolutionary picture, as it turns out, what you need to get is not only development of one kind of life form to another life form, but you've got to get a kickoff. You've got to have the origin of life to begin with. You've got to get living stuff from dead stuff. This is called abiogenesis. And this is a problem. So how do you get living stuff from dead stuff? And what he, the pro professor, was inclined to do as a Christian was to say, you guys got a problem because you can't do this, that, and the other thing, and blah, 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 and preach at him. Instead, this time, here's what he did. He said, abiogenesis, this is a concern, right? You got to get the kickoff, right? Atheist, how does that happen? So instead of objecting to the problem, he just invites the atheist to explain how it happened. And here is what he told me happened. I am, I am not adding anything to this at all. And it's still, you know, I know I'm 64, but I can still reach back four weeks. Uh, he started with an explanation about how you get living stuff from dead stuff. And when he'd been talking for a little bit, he paused, and then he said, this is actually better evidence for intelligent design. The atheist said this. He said, let me try another route. And, and so he started with another direction to explain it. And as he's explaining, he stops the second time and said, no, this is actually better evidence for intelligent design too. Now, what was the brilliant thing that the biology professor who is the Christian had said in the process. Nothing. What was his contribution? Nothing. All he did was ask the question that got the ball rolling. This put the ball in the other person's court. Now they had to come up with the goods. And a lot of times they don't have the goods. That is, they have virtually nothing to say. Now, sometimes they will have things to say. But I will tell you a secret about asking this first question. If you ask the question, what do you mean by that, you're going to get what I call the Simon and Garfunkel response. Now, for you young fellows, I've got to explain what that means. Because back in the 60s, this fabulous duo called Simon and Garfunkel, Paul Simon and Garfunkel, wrote a song that was called The Sounds of Silence. And that's what you hear. Oftentimes, when you ask the question, what do you mean by that? Now, you'd expect people know what they meant by it. That they would be able to propound the point clearly, thoroughly. No, it doesn't happen that way. Many, many times, people will just be caught up short 
when you ask for a clarification. They don't know what to say. And, and this has happened time and time again, and this is why I warn you in advance, don't be surprised if you just ask for clarification and people are dumbfounded. Now, you'd expect they know what they mean, but sometimes they don't. Because they are like Christians, they repeat slogans that they haven't really thought through. And this just gives them an opportunity to express themselves. And when you ask, what do you mean by that? You are doing them a favor because you're forcing them to articulate their own view. And there are a whole lot of challenges that go out there against Christianity that's, that survive in a conversation simply because they're ambiguous, they're unclear, and nobody's ever thought about what they mean. And let me end this segment because we have to take a... No, I'll, I'm going to save this for later. We need to take a break just now. We've been going for a while. Remind me to tell you about the intolerance trick, though. The intolerance, the passive-aggressive tolerance trick. And I'll try to start with that, okay? Now, before you leave, I want to tell you something about, uh, that's been handed out to you. Can you hand me your little... Do you leave up there? Thank you. Uh, I want to say something about the organization I represent. I hope you are getting a picture of the kind of thing that we can help you with as followers and ambassadors of Christ that we can help you be more effective in a biblically sound way, engaging other people with your convictions without getting into fights. We want to build ambassadors for Christ. In fact, I would like to mentor you at a distance. And I have people all over the, wherever I go, people say, you know what, you don't know this, but you've been my mentor. And that is one of the best things that you, anyone could ever say to me. Here's the plan how to do that. First, go to our website, str.org, and... Uh, and, uh, and, and sign up for the podcast. You can also do that on the app. If you haven't got the app, like, uh, uh, like, like was mentioned earlier, if you haven't got the app, then go ahead and download that on your phone right now. Blake had mentioned that. So um, that gives you access to our stuff. And the best thing that you could do to be a good ambassador using the tactical approach is to listen to me do it. With, in live situations. You're, you're coming alongside with me. You're listening on my shoulder. I have three hours of broadcasting a week. They're all one show, and we have a national market, but uh, most people listen through podcasts, and it's only three hours. That's one L.A. commute, and probably it's pretty close to that in Dallas, too. So it's not burdensome, but it's the best thing you could do. The second thing is um, we'd like to send you free training material every single month, and that's what this card is for, okay? So if you pull this out, there's a place where you can write your name and address and your, your uh, email the email is helpful because whenever we're in, the, in the ne this neck of the woods again, we'll send you an email blast and let you know that we're here and you can come to an event. Uh, also, we can send uh, our material to you virtuals, and if you get the virtual, then we can, you can send it to other people real easily. What you're going to receive is our bi-monthly newsletter. You have a sample of that with you. My promise is that you will not get in our newsletter pictures of our staff at bake sales. Not that kind of newsletter. It's called Solid Ground. It's going to be a hard-hitting piece that will help you to answer a challenge that we're facing in our culture. All right? So that's the newsletter, bi-monthly. Alternating months, you get a one-page mentoring letter from me. One-page mentoring letter from me where I talk about something that will help you to be a better ambassador for Christ. It's a little vignette. And so you get something every month from me so I can try to train you. Take a moment right now and fill this card out. And then when you go out... Behind this room, in the hallway, there's a table where we've got a number of books. The tactics book is there. There is also the tactics DVD. There's a few of these, not many. I think there's two or three left if you want to train a group, if you like what you hear today. Here today. Here's tactics CDs. You can put these on, and they're not the book on tape, but they're me teaching the same material 
kind of a one-on-one -on -one format so you can get it a different way. Some are auditory learners and some uh, like, to, uh, like to, to read. This thing, though, is going to be indispensable, and these are going to go real quickly. This is a little booklet. It's for the reading challenged <laughs> and also for the financially challenged. It's only two bucks, but the title is Jesus, the Only Way, 100 Verses. That means there are 100 verses here that demonstrate that Jesus is the only way of salvation. Now, it says that I'm the author, Gregory Kokel there, but God wrote most of this, just so you know. <laughs> All right. Um, this is very controversial in our, in our culture, and I want people to understand this is a claim Jesus made, and he taught it to every single one of the people that he trained to follow after him. That would be his disciples who wrote about it. They all said the same thing. If people want to get angry about Jesus being the only way, take it up with the guy who made the claim to begin with. And this validates that claim. Effectiveness and for their safety and for their tactical significance. Questions allow us to maneuver in conversations well, to keep us in the driver's seat. They allow us to gather a lot of information without putting ourselves at risk. In fact, we're not doing most of the talking, we're doing most of the listening at this particular stage. And the information that we're gathering as we ask the questions puts us in an increasingly more advantageous position to move forward to the next step if we take it. It may turn out that sometimes you're asking your questions and you're gathering your information and it doesn't seem like this is going to go anywhere. That's okay with me. I do not believe that every appointment is a divine appointment. That every single person you encounter, you have to engage to the nth degree with. I don't think that. I'm mostly going with the flow here. As I say in chapter 2 of the book, I'm looking for the person who's looking for me. I'm looking for the one who is open to being cultivated a little bit. And if I get really, really strong pushback of one kind or another, I realize probably what I'm going to say is not going to be helpful. So I'm, rather than bruise the fruit, I'm just going to back off. So I'm, I'm probing a little bit with my initial questions to find out whether there's a real occasion to go much, much further. And sometimes when I'm sitting next to somebody on the airplane, I get rolling and the information I get back indicates to me that this person has no interest whatsoever in anything I have to say. Somebody might ask me, well, how do you know that? I, I, it's, I'm the Holy Spirit's not talking to me. I'm not like radically in tune, so I know how to, what to, I'm just making a judgment. This is the way I think God works most of the time. He's not whispering in my ear. You got to make your own judgment. You size up the circumstances as best you can and make a judgment. And if I feel like this is falling on deaf ears, then I'm not going to keep continuing. I had uh, my, the wife of my discipler when I was a new Christian, uh, Kathy Englert, said to me, referring to John 10, where Jesus said, my sheep hear my voice. And this passage, by the way, is not a passage about God speaking to Christians. He is not talking about that. He is talking about God speaking to non-Christians. Just to let you know, most Christians misunderstand that passage when they cite it. It's about the non-Christians who are hearing the effective call of the Spirit to draw them into Jesus, into faith of Jesus. That is clearly what's going on in the context if you read the whole chapter. In any event, she said to me, you notice when you're talking to people, sometimes the sheep will lift its head. 
They hear the voice, so to speak. It's a metaphor. In fact, John 10, verse 6 says, this Jesus spoke as a figure of speech. It's a figure of speech. And so they kind of hear his voice. There's an alertness that the Holy Spirit is causing in that situation. She said, when I notice that they lift their heads, then I will continue talking. Other sheep just keep eating grass. So if you're talking to somebody who just keeps eating grass, just move on. Don't force the issue. This is my advice. Somebody else may give different advice. This is my advice. And I think that's a proper and appropriate um, application of John 10. And so we're going to use questions here to find out the lay of the land, to get information, to know whether we should go forward, and sometimes we don't go forward. And by the way, this is a question. What do you mean by that? You can ask all day long until the cows come home or the steers come home, whatever, the longhorns. And, it, it's, it does, and, and there's no pressure on you. This is easy. You're in student mode. You're in information-gathering mode. If you do, you, you do not have to decide to go to the next stage if you don't want to. And sometimes I'll say to newbies, look, at if this is new to you and you're a little nervous about that, fine. Take one question. What do you mean by that? And spend the next month in your engagements with others who don't share your own convictions, talking with them, drawing them out to figure out what their convictions are. That's not hard. It's easy. And then you get a great education for free, and there's no pressure on you. So... First step of Colombo, gather information. The question we use is, what do you mean by that? Second step of Colombo, second application. I'm going to call this reversing the burden of proof. Reversing the burden of proof. Now, burden of proof is a technical term. You probably heard it uh, connected with American jurisprudence or something like it. What does burden of proof mean? It's a smaller group. I'd ask somebody for the definition, but I'll just give it to you. Burden proof means the responsibility to give reasons or to give evidence. The responsibility to give reasons or evidence or a rationale. Now, here's the second question, and it's really critical. Who shoulders that burden in any particular conversation? Upon whose shoulders is the responsibility to give evidence? And the answer to that question is... The one who makes the claim bears the burden. The one who makes the claim bears the burden. If you say that something is so, in other words, you put your idea into play in the conversation, and especially if it's a controversial idea, well, it is your job then to give reasons why you think anyone should take your idea seriously. So in American jurisprudence, who, who is the burden of proof? It's the prosecution, right? Because the prosecution says, you're guilty. And you say, prove it. And it is their job, since they're making the claim, to give the evidence that you're guilty, as they say. It is not your job to prove your own innocence, okay? Now, that's the principle I want you to think about applying in your conversations with other people. And the fact is, we have often given the other side a free ride. That is, they have made a claim and then we have taken the responsibility upon ourselves to disprove the claim rather than forcing the responsibility upon them to give us a reason for their views. Now, I shouldn't say forcing because it shouldn't be forcing. It is appropriate for them to do that. 
That is, they'll say something like, well, the, the Bible's just a bunch of fables, or, or the, uh, the, the, the New Testament has been changed, or the, uh, um, uh, everything's relative, or there is no God. Or, and so what, what do we do then? If we're a little bit active in this, we think, all right, well, I'm going to try to show him that he's wrong. That's my job. I'm a Christian. I've got to give an answer for the hope that's within me. And so here are the reasons for God. Here are the reasons against relativism. Here are the reasons uh, for this, that, and the other thing. And what have we done? We have given the other guy a completely free ride. We have allowed the other guy to say whatever he wants or she wants, and then we have acted like we have all the responsibility to come up with a refutation. Well, we're not going to do that anymore. Because in the immortal words of Ricky Ricardo, who is Ricky Ricardo? <laughs> Desi Arnaz. Lucy, you cannot be on the show, that guy. In the immortal words of Ricky Ricardo, they got a lot of explaining to do themselves. And so when they make their own claim, when they make their statements, whatever they are, we are going to force ourselves not to take upon ourselves the responsibility to refute them before we push the responsibility back on them to make a case for their view. To do the splaining. It's easy to make, to say what you think, it's another thing to defend what you say. And for you, follower of Christ, if the other guy's doing the saying, they got to do the splaining. That's the point here with the second move. Now, I want to give you an example of this that's a real-life example. For me, when I was on KFI, the CBS affiliate in Los Angeles, the big 60,000-watt hammer coming out of there, it, it goes all the way to the Mississippi River when, it's, uh, you know, when it go, things go clear at night. So it's a huge station. It's the shock jock station, and they had me come on to do a show uh, for an hour on intelligent design versus evolution. And so I kind of made my case, and they opened the lines, and then people climb on top of me. There was a caller then was invoking Big Bang cosmology against me. And I know there are controversies about this in the body of Christ, and that's all right. But for me, I don't think there's any... I, I'm not troubled with the Big Bang. And the reason I'm not troubled with it is it seems to me the Big Bang needs a big banger, okay? <laughs> and if you ever wondered about the cosmological argument for the existence of God or William Lane Craig's uh, Kalam cosmological argument, you can read his books and work through them and all that other stuff, and they're great. But Big Bang needs a big banger. That pretty much covers it, okay? There's your whole cosmological argument in a simple sentence. Because it's very intuitive, it's very handy, it's very easy to offer to people. I said, if there's a big bang, you need a big banger. What caused the big bang? Now, he is going to respond to me, and he is going to try to explain to me how you can get a big bang without a big banger, or how you can get something from nothing. So let me read you his explanation. Because this is one of those places where, okay, now, now what do you say? That's where I was at on this radio station. Well, I don't think it is. I don't think... It's evidence for God, Big Bang is, because, and here's his explanation, you could start with a base of nothing and you could say that there was nothing but an infinite continuous moment and eventually one tiny little insignificant thing happened, a point happened in the nothingness. 
Let me just pause there for a moment. Well, that's the problem, isn't it? How do you get a point in the nothingness? Maybe it's a really small point. I guess that helps. Strictly speaking, you can't get a point in nothingness because nothingness isn't something you can put anything into. You can only put a point into space. And this is one of those occasions where people treat the word nothing as if it were something, and they do this all the time. What caused it? Nothing caused it. Nothing caused it? And they're thinking of nothing as something, as nothing as causal power. In any event, I'll read, continue reading, you'll see. A point happened in, in the nothingness, and then the point expanded, which is extremely simple. It requires no intelligence. So no intelligent God had to intervene. Oh, pardon me on the pause there. I was just fixing my glasses. All we need is a little tiny imperfection in the perfect nothingness. And that imperfection expanded, became variegated, and increasingly complex, and soon you had galaxies and planets spinning out of this thing. Now, I... I call this the argument from imagination. Because all he has done is told a story. And now i got to answer this. I had to somehow refute this. Okay? Here's what I did. I pointed out how he started. I said, it's interesting how you started. You said you could say that, and then you told your story, your imaginative story, which is largely incoherent, by the way, but I didn't point that out. Because he's treating nothing as something and the perfect nothingness and all that other stuff. Um, you can say anything you want. But giving us reasons to take seriously what you said, that's a different story. And that's your job. And unless you can make sense out of your statement and then give evidence for it, I have nothing that I have to respond to. And that was my response. See, I'm employing the second step. It is his job to defend his view. It is not my job to disassemble it. And again, no more free rides. It is, people can make up all kinds of stories, and they do all the time. And they'll often start their tale out with this statement, I can explain that. When you hear, well, I can explain that, you're, just under, you're about to get a bedtime story. That is some fanciful tale that is meant to put you to, to your argument or your point of view to bed. And, uh, oh, I can explain why there are miracles in the Bible. I mean, miracles don't happen, and Jesus wasn't a miracle worker. I know that, but I'll tell you how it got in there. You see, at the Council of Nicaea in 325 A.D., uh, these guys all got together, and they took the mere man, Jesus, and they made him into the Son of God, and they rewrote the Bible and put miracles into that. And, and, and so now that everybody had to obey the church, because Jesus then gave authority to the church, and Jesus is the God-man, and see how this is just a big political power move. Now, some of you might recognize that little scenario from Dan Brown, uh, and he, he's not the only one who's told this tale, but Dan Brown and his Da Vinci Code and, and others like him, okay? Well, you know, when the guy tells me that whole thing, I, I might have some more questions of a clarification nature. What did you mean by that? What did you mean? How do you think this all happened? But now he's got the whole thing there. He's not done yet. I can explain that. There it is. All right, I got it. I got another question for you. What's that question? And here it is. How did you come to that conclusion? Now, how did you come to that conclusion? I understand what you believe happened. How do you, why do you believe that's actually what did happen? Just saying you can, coming up with an explanation, 
does not tell me that your explanation is a good one given the historical evidence. Now, nothing like that happened at the Council of Nicaea. We have the records of Nicaea. Dan Brown said it was a close vote about the Son of God. No, it wasn't. It was 318 to 2. And we know who the two people were. They were from Egypt, the, the, uh, the representatives from Egypt. There is no relationship between that fairy tale of Dan Brown's and any of the others that people tell and the actual facts of the matter. And this is why it's really important for people to help pony up with the evidence. How did you come to that conclusion? And this is true about all kinds of claims that people make. Once you get clarification on the point of view, that's your first use of Columbo, gather information, how, uh, what do you mean by that? Then you are going to, second use of Columbo, reverse the burden of proof. You're going to ask the question, now how did you come to that conclusion? Those are your two foundational questions for your game plan. Notice in both of these things, you're not doing anything but listening. You're getting clarification on their point. You want them to defend their ideas. Now yesterday, when I was on the airplane, I was sitting, I got bumped up to the first class, which happens once in a while, which is really nice. Too bad it was only a two and a half hour flight to Dallas and it wasn't like coast to coast or something like that. But I'm happy. I'm a happy camper. I'm working away. I have a policy that I've recently adopted kind of as a rule, that when I get on the plane, I sit next to somebody, I say hi to them. I greet them warmly. And then it doesn't mean that I don't introduce myself and I get into, but I just make human contact. That's the least I could do. And so um, I did, and, and uh, I don't know, I think he, we, we're to, he's coming from Australia, I'm coming, where you, you're going home, you're out to work, what are you doing? And I, I explained that I was coming here to do this talk, and I explained what I do, train Christians to do, uh, to, 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 um, to engage more, more effectively with others, to think more carefully about their own convictions, and to offer a thoughtful, meaningful, hopefully persuasive defense because I think there are true answers to the issue of uh, religious questions. And so he's sitting there very calmly and pleasantly listening, and, and, uh, and so um, I said, how about you? And he said, uh, how about me what? And I said, well, how, how, your own spiritual convictions. Where, where are you at spiritually? And I said this very, very relaxed, okay? If he, did, if he said I didn't have any or whatever, I probably, I don't know where I'd gone, but he, I'm just talking about my spiritual thing. It was a natural thing. This is maybe a bridge question. I don't ask this all the time, but I just did then. I said, and what about yourself? And uh, he said, actually, I'm an a unusual religion from the East. I'm a Jain. I said, well, I know what Jains are, Jainism. I said, you don't have your, ma your th mask on, you know. And he laughed. He said, so you do know about it. Jains are really into reincarnation. And they don't want to kill anything, even microorganisms. So they would oftentimes wear a mask on their face so they don't breathe in microbes that they might kill. Now, you can imagine that this is a very difficult lifestyle to live. And this was a lot of what our conversation amounted to. And so I, I started drawing him out, asking him more questions about Jainism and the difficulty of being a consistent Jain. And I said, well, look, at if you keep uh, sucking up these microbes or eating the wrong foods and stuff like that, and he was telling me how he's really careful about his diet. He doesn't eat all these different things that, so they're really, and, and, and the guy, I didn't say anything, obviously, but the guy was a little bit overweight. So I, he couldn't have been that good of a Jane, you know what I'm talking about? Um, but, but, but I said, you know, but this means you're always increasing your karmic, karmic debt on your view. Is that right? And I said, well, yeah. Well, things are always getting worse for you than not better. 
in order to get your karmic debt worked off so you can be reincarnated in a higher form and get out of the cycle of reincarnation, you got to be really, really good and kill almost nothing. And I said, what's the hope in that? So what am I doing? I'm asking information questions, but I have a point in mind. I'm, I'm wanting to start feeling the demand of his own system on him and that he's getting guiltier and guiltier, right? Now, it didn't seem to have that impact on him, okay? But I did have it. So, you know, you never know what's going to happen, what's going to work. So I did ask another question. I said, why do you think Jainism is true? That's our second question, isn't it? I'm not arguing for Christianity. I haven't done, I'm talking about Jainism. That's his view. Why do you think it's true? Well, he gave me some more details about Jainism. And I said, no, no, I, I, want, you to, I want to know why do you think this is actually an accurate way of looking at the world? And he says, you just have to believe. And the more I go to other Jain teachings and stuff, the more confident I get of Jainism because I hear these people teaching more frequently and I see Jainist saints that really impress me. Okay, well, there's a kind of a reason there, the lifestyle of certain models in his religious community, but mostly there wasn't hardly anything there. You just have to believe is what he said. And I said, have you ever considered the teaching uh, of Jesus of Nazareth, what Jesus had to say? He said, you know something? I've done a lot of reading in Jainism. I've never considered any other thing. I've never even looked at it. The only thing I know about Christianity is what I see on TV and in the movies. I said, well, you know, that's going to be accurate, right? Yeah, so we had a big laugh. Um, and uh, I said, uh, well, here's what I said. Can I give you something? He said, I want to give you an account of the life of Jesus written by somebody who spent three and a half years with him. And my encouragement is just a little biography, short. You probably read it in an hour or so, uh, maybe an hour and a half. And, uh, and don't just jump around through it. I want you to follow the whole story. Don't just cherry pick. When you follow the whole story, you're going to get a picture of what Jesus was all about. What do you think? Oh, yeah, I'd be glad to. And I pull out a Gospel of John that I carry in my bag, and I gave it to him. And that was the end of our conversation. And I went back to my work. He went back to his work. I wasn't going to beat him up for two and a half hours on the plane. I wasn't going to overwhelm him with information. I have done what I came to do. I put a stone in his shoe. He had a good experience with a thoughtful Christian person. He's walking away with a Gospel of John in his back pocket, which he said he is going to read. And if he does, the Word of God can do whatever work God wants to do with it. He's my task for the moment. He is God's problem. Okay. So there is something that just happened yesterday. What was I doing? I was following my game plan with a stranger. People say, well, people don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. I do not believe that is true. I think there is a truism there that is if you treat them like garbage, they're not going to listen to anything else you say. But this man was a stranger to me. I was just courteous to him, drew him out. I don't think he went away thinking, boy, that guy, he really loved me. No, I was just courteous to him. But he went away with something to think about. All I had done is employed the first two steps of my game plan. I never made a defense for Christianity at all. And the only thing that I said about Jesus is that Jesus came to take away all of that bad karma. You got karmic debt. Every time you turn around, it's getting bigger and bigger. That's what Jesus came to wipe out. And that's the only thought I left with him. Now, we don't have karma in our system, but we have something like that. It's called sin. So that was a touchstone with him. But I used my game plan, and then I went back to work. And as, I mean, to the stuff I was working on. And when we got out, he called me by name. He said, see you later. He said twice as I'm going out. So we were buddies. Hey, Greg, have a good trip. Yeah. Enjoy yourself at the church. Say hi to the kids, you know. 
Easy. Easy. No pressure. Stone in his shoe. Two questions. That's all I used with him. And that's where we're at here. How did you come to that conclusion? Now, I want you to be aware of a couple of things when you uh, use that question. First of all, same as with the first question. What do you mean by that? You get Simon and Garfunkel. How'd you come to that conclusion? Simon and Garfunkel. Because people don't really come to conclusions about things. They are socialized to believe what they believe, just like Christians are. Everybody around them believes it, so I believe it, and we just toss it out there. We don't know the rationale that leads to the point we made. And so you're assuming something charitably about that person that they actually thought through it well enough to come to a conclusion when, in fact, they didn't come to a conclusion. They're just parroting what they've heard. They may genuinely, deeply believe it, but they may not understand the rationale that justifies it, that makes it worth believing. And so when you, uh, you ask the question, how did you come to that conclusion, or what are your reasons for that, or something along that line, don't be surprised when you get silence again. I've had people say to me after I've asked them, and they were thinking, they said, well, I don't have any reasons to believe that. So now I have another question. I said, why would you believe something that you have no reasons to believe? Is that a fair question? You know what they say? I don't have a reason for that either, <laughs> honestly. Okay, now I, I want to warn you about a ploy, a thing that I call a professor's ploy. And this happened to me two weeks ago, a week and a half ago, in um, Washburn University. It was, it, was, it was textbook. I could not believe it. He, I thought he read my book, and he was just acting it out. A philosophy professor who came to the mic. Well, let me first tell you what the professor's ploy is. There are a lot of professors who have as their goal in university, and they're ubiquitous, that is, they're everywhere, and some of them are in Christian universities. Who have, or let me just do this, Christian universities, who have it as their goal to destroy the spiritual convictions of every Christian that comes into their classroom, and sometimes they'll announce it in class. I've heard this many times. The professor will say, any Christians in my class here? Yeah, you won't be a Christian when I get done with you. All right? I had a guy like that at UCLA. I'm here to disprove the existence of the God of the Bible. So um, during that, a class like that, even if the class has nothing to do with anything religious, you're gonna, this professor is going to be weighing in aggressively and hostily with re, in a hostile fashion with regards to Christianity. And uh, say the Bible is just a bunch of fables or that kind of thing. And you're going to have Christians that are in the back that are not going to take this lying down um, and they're going to raise their hand, and they're going to take the professor on head-to-head, -head, okay, in the classroom. You know what I'm talking about here. Now, look, at, I think that this is right-hearted, but I think it is wrong-headed because it violates an important uh, uh, principle of engagement, and that is uh, you, 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 never, uh, uh, you never make a frontal assault on a superior force in an entrenched position. <laughs> this is suicidal. You know, you, this is crazy. And that's what's happening there. The man with the microphone is going to win. He's got bigger guns. Come on. All right? Now, I'm not saying disengage. I'm saying use your tactics instead. Because a, a, a military team with smart tactical maneuvering can defeat a, more, a, a stronger force. Okay? 
So what would that look like in this situation? If you were a student in a class now where the professor was propounding about how the Bible is just a bunch of fables, I don't know what question might come to mind right about then you could raise your hand and ask of the professor. What do you mean by that? Is that the kind of question that students are supposed to ask? Is that a confrontation? Is that a power struggle? No, this is perfect. This is just what you're supposed to be doing. Professor goes on and he gives more detail about what he means by that. Now you've got clarification. I don't know what question, second question might come to mind right now that you might ask the professor. Now, how did you come to that conclusion? What are your reasons for that? Also, a fully legitimate question, not a power struggle, not inappropriate in any way. However, the professor may figure out that you must be one of those Christians who are sandbagging a little bit, you know, and so he's going to call you out, right? And he might say something, well, look, I got a few extra minutes here. Why don't, why don't you stand up and, ex since you obviously disagree with me, why don't you stand up and explain to the rest of the class why you believe the Bible's the Word of God, every jot and tittle. Go ahead. I got a minute. Okay, now what has the professor just done? He's reversed the burden of proof. And why is that inappropriate in this circumstance? Because the professor made the claim. The Christian's asking questions. When you ask questions, you're not making claims, are you? You're asking questions. So you're not taking a stand when you're asking questions. And if you're not taking a stand, you have no responsibility to bear the burden of proof. I hope you're going to, you see in the, the, the advantage here. If all you do is ask questions, you are not putting any position out there that you have to defend. And if you make it your goal to make progress only by asking questions, then you are free and clear. It's like you had a totally hedged position here. You're not going to get in trouble. And in fact, I was, I, I, I was at a party once. Uh, I can't remember the guy's name. Um, he is the Saturday Night Live guy um, who did this Mr. Subliminal. Hey, that's a nice dress. Really looks ugly. You know, that kind of, can't remember his name. But I, I happened to be invited to a party at his house once in, in, in Manhattan Beach. And it was a small group of people. And I didn't know him, but I knew his friend. And, and I got in a conversation with his wife, Kevin Nealon. Kevin Nealon. I got in a conversation with his wife who was a rabid on animal rights. And so I, and so was her girlfriend. And I was just sitting there talking the whole time, and I'm asking all these questions. And finally, they, she says to me, well, you believe X, Y, Z. And I said, wait a minute. I have never said anything at all about what I believe. She's inferring it from my questions, but I haven't laid it out. And if I don't lay my beliefs out like that, then I don't take any burden of proof. I'm safe at that point. And this is what I want you to realize. You ask these two questions, you're going to be safe. So when the professor calls you out like that and then throws the burden of proof back on you, that's the professor's ploy. Don't take the bait. What you can say in that situation is, well, professor, gee, um, I'm just a student. I'm just asking questions. As far as you know, I might even agree with you. I've never given you my point of view. So you don't know what my point of view is. I just want to know what you believe and why you believe it. That's all. Unless you want us all in this class to take everything you say by faith. No, don't say that. <laughs> now, you get the point here, right? So, a week and a half ago, I'm at Washburn University. Here's a philosophy of a professor at the microphone. I had just given a talk on the problem of evil. 
Now, the problem of evil is usually given as, some of this might go over your head, so that's okay. It might hit the person behind you. But there are two forms of the problem of evil. The one you're mostly familiar with is the deductive problem of evil, which is there's a contradiction between the idea that good, powerful God lives in a world with evil. Okay, there's a contradiction there. Now, that doesn't go through. And uh, though this is the thing that most people think, it turns out to be a good argument for the existence of God, not, a ba- not against the existence of God, and there is no contradiction. And that's why most philosophers have abandoned that particular argument. But there's an inductive problem, and the, prob- the inductive problem of evil says, well, maybe evil doesn't prove God doesn't exist, but it shows that it's not likely he exists because there's so much pointless suffering. There is so much pointless suffering suffering. Okay, now that was the argument he brought up. He had a couple of other silly objections that I had to deal with that were below the dignity of a philosophy professor, but I don't have time to get into that. I talked about it on the radio, so if you go back a week, you'll be able to hear about that conversation. But, um, but uh, he did have a legitimate challenge with the inductive problem, but I'm familiar with that concern, and he has a liability. If he says there is so much pointless evil in the world, he bears a burden of proof now. And that burden of proof is to show that the vast majority of suffering is without point. Now, the difficulty here is there's no way to know that. There is absolutely no way. You can't look at any incident of suffering and know that there's no good that a sovereign God is going to bring from that suffering because we're not the sovereign God. And so I asked him, how do you know that the suffering is pointless? Which is an appropriate question given his challenge. And he said to you, to me, how do you know it's not? So he threw it right back onto me. You prove to me that this particular incident of suffering has value to justify the suffering and then then I'll be satisfied with that, but then you have to show it with every instance. And I said to him, I didn't take the bait. It was textbook. I said, Professor, this is your argument. This is your point. It is your job to defend it. It is not my job to refute it. If you cannot give us good reason for us to believe that you know enough to show that all of this suffering that you think is pointless is certainly without any good justification, if you can't show that, then your argument doesn't go through. And it is not my job to refute that. And that was the end of that discussion. This professor tried this thing on me. I was able to just put it back. Now, obviously, I, I'm not proving God's existence at that point. What I'm trying to do is parry the argument that he's offering. And he bears the responsibility for the burden of proof when he offers an argument, but it was a burden that he was not able to live up to. And actually, nobody is able to on that inductive problem. You've got to be God to know the answer to that question. Uh, anyway, this is just something that recently happened. So that's the professor's ploy. Now, before we go to lunch, I want to tell you one other way to use these first two questions. There is a third use of Columbo. I will get to that after, uh, after the, um, the lunch break, and I'll also talk to you about how you can improve your Columbo tactic and maybe how to defend when somebody uses Columbo against you, which happens. But I want to tell you one other value of just these first two questions. Uh, It helps you, these questions will help you get out of the hot seat. Now, what do I mean by the hot seat? The hot seat is where you find yourself when 
you're talking with somebody and maybe you're in persuasion mode. You're giving your point of view and you're trying to advance some reasons and rationale regarding some aspect. And then you get a pushback from somebody who's got a lot of education or knowledge apparently in one aspect of this conversation. Maybe you're talking science and, uh, and uh, Big Bang and a Big Bang needs a Big Banger and then this, some guy says, well, I'm a cosmologist and, and uh, you know, you can get something from nothing. I've read the book by Krauss on something from nothing and I've read The Grand Design by Richard uh, Stephen Hawking and see, they get something from nothing and all of a sudden you realize that you're being outgunned. You didn't read those books. You don't know what they say. You don't know how to deal with that. But here's a guy with all of this stuff. And the more he talks, the more, the more overwhelmed you feel and the more outclassed you feel, outgunned by, by the information because you don't know how to deal with this. And, 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 and pretty soon you're, you're looking for the door and you're thinking, oh my gosh, I, never, I wish I would have never opened up my big fat mouth because now I'm in trouble. Okay? I don't know if you ever felt that way. I have. So I'm going to tell you how you can get out of the hot seat. Incidentally, when somebody's coming on with you with a lot of information that you don't, you can't deal with, um, who is in the driver's seat of this conversation? You or that other person? That other person. They're driving, and they're driving you mad, right? And, and you're feeling it, okay? So here's what we're going to do in this situation. It's very easy to deal with this, okay? What we are going to do when we realize that we're outmatched information-wise, is we're going to shift immediately from, fr from persuasion mode to fact-finding mode. From persuasion mode to fact-finding mode. Okay, we're going to immediately become students. We're going to realize the lay of the land, we're going to sum it up, and we're going to back off. And here's the way we're, we're going to... Uh, we're going to use what I call verbal Aikido or conversational Aikido. Now, what's Aikido? Aikido is a self-defense where you do not resist the person's force. You use their force to your advantage. Who's the guy with the ponytail in the movies that does that? Steven Seagal. You're not supposed to know that, but uh, maybe it's a guy thing. But you know how he does, and he, he's all really relaxed, and the bad guy comes at him, and he just kind of ducks to the side and flies by, and he hear this crack of the bones, and the guy hits the wall, and he's all busted into pieces. And Steven Seagal has not broken a sweat, so that's Aikido. So we're going to do something like that in a conversational way. The person wants to come after you, you're going to say, come on down. Come and get me. And here's the way it looks. Once you realize you're outgunned, you say to the person, hold on just a second. It's pretty clear to me that you know a lot more about this than I do. So I wonder if you could do me a favor. Slow down a little bit. Let me get a piece of paper or something. Let me just pay attention. And I want to hear really clearly exactly what your view is. And then maybe you can give me the particular reasons for the view you hold. Now, anybody recognize those two statements? Those are our first two what? Those are our first two Colombo questions, right? It's all we're asking for. Slow down. Give it to me clearly. Let me write it down. I want to understand your view, okay? Here is the reason, something from nothing, okay? And, and you get, how do you get that? Here it is. Okay, great, I got it. And then when they've done all their talking, incidentally, then they start talking again and you're writing. Who's in control of the conversation at this point? Me or the other person? I am. I'm in the driver's seat again. I've just, like that, switched the control 
but that person doesn't know it. Now I'm cool, calm, and collected, and I'm getting an education, and I'm writing it down. And once I get it all down, I get it clear in my own head around the paper, then I say to the person, okay, great, thank you very much, let me think about that. Let me think about it. Now, them's the magic words, and I'll tell you why. Because once you say, then let me think about it, do you have any further responsibility to answer the challenge that has just been given you? No, you've just said, I'm stupid. Oh, grasshopper, riddle me this. You know, it's like you're sitting at their feet being instructed, basking in their intellectual glory. And no problem. Then let me think about it. Now you're off the hook completely, but you have something to think about, don't you? So then what do you do next? I'll tell you what you do next. You do the thing you just said you were going to do. On your own, at your leisure, when the pressure's off, then you think about it. And you can go to scr.org or reasons.org or, or you, you, you know, find, you go to the apologetics group. You have a fine group here. Um, Blake heads up and you, you got other people like Nathan that are involved with that. And uh, you, you've got resources in your community on the web. Then you do your work. You got the point of view. You got the reasons why. It's all right there. And once you do it, you got it. Next time this issue comes around, now you've got something to say, right? You're not going to be bowled over by all of this stuff. But what if it's some other issue and somebody else's is evolution or it's a, you know, the manuscript evidence or something, and all of a sudden you're overwhelmed and you say, well, okay, slow down. You know more about this than I do. How about you do me a favor? Tell me what you believe and why you believe it. Let me write it down. Let me get it clearly. I want to understand you and let me think about it. Is that hard? That's easy. You know what you're telling the person? Here's what you're telling them. You want to beat me up? Okay. Just do it slowly and thoroughly, please. <laughs> Is there anybody in this room, the most bashful, shy, timid, retiring, who can't say to some tough, smarty pants, you, 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 you want to be, beat me up? Okay, yeah, just do it slowly, please, and do it thoroughly. Anybody can do that. You get off the hook. You're in charge of the conversation. He doesn't know that, but you are. And you're getting the information you need, so you're ready next time. You made the best of the circumstance you possibly could have made. This is a winner. And you thought it was a loser. You see, you can use these questions to turn things around if you try. And this is not difficult to do. So we've got, we've got two uses of Columbo so far. Gathering information with the question, what do you mean by that? Reversing the burden of proof with the question, how would you come to that conclusion? We found how you can use that in engaging a professor who is using a burden of proof reversal trick on you and uh, how you can avoid that trick. And we found out how you can use those questions to get yourself out of the hot seat Get yourself an education on a tough issue and buy yourself some time so you can get up to speed on an answer so you're ready next time. Is that helpful? This is massive. Incidentally, in case you don't know it, I have already fulfilled my obligation to you to give you a game plan that will allow you to converse with confidence in any situation, no matter how little you know or how aggressive or knowledgeable the other person may be. Those two questions are all you need, but there's more, you know, or how aggressive or knowledgeable the other person may be. 
Those two questions are all you need, but there's more. Well, um, this is always a dangerous part of any conference, right after lunch. Because you, you've had a good morning, you know, a lot of information, had a good meal. The temptation is going to be strong for some of you to drift into the arms of Morpheus here in the middle of our conversation. So I'm going to be watching, and I may ask you a question if I see you drifting off. I'll try to do my best to keep you alive here. I do want you to know I've signed quite a few books. There's still more for sale on the table, and people were lined up before and weren't able to get them because we started again. I will be staying after two as long as I need to to answer questions, to sign books, and to deal with things. Uh, so I'll be in the back there. I'm not going to run off. So we'll be available to you. And I will be at services tomorrow. And uh, tomorrow evening, I'm doing a special thing with Todd. I don't know what you usually do on Sunday, but we're going to be sitting up at the stage together. He's going to be asking me questions. And uh, uh, we're going to be just talking about this whole enterprise of standing for Christ in the context of our culture and uh, the, the challenges that I see that we're facing and how to respond well and tactically and sound as a good ambassador. I think it's going to be a, a, a real fun conversation between Todd and I. And so I just invite you to come for the uh, Sunday evening um, event, too. I, I don't know. Do you usually have a Sunday evening event? You do. So, okay, well, you know about that. So, What I've been inviting you to do here is to think about your encounters with other people who are not uh, Christians. They don't share our view of reality. They, they don't uh, share our convictions, um, but might be willing to if they had a clear view of what they were and they were graciously and persuasively presented. What I am encouraging you to do is to look at that enterprise in a different way that maybe you have looked at it before. And I, I'm, I'm gently asking you to, let's just put the evangelism word aside for a moment and uh, and approach the, the same enterprise from a different perspective. Not thinking about harvesting, but thinking about gardening instead. Um, th thinking about being an ambassador who is trying to put a stone in people's shoes, that is to make a, just to make a contribution in a conversation, and let that be adequate to just s stew a little bit in a person's mind or their life and let the Holy Spirit use that and then Trust God to bring other ambassadors into a person's life later on after you're out. So we're going to, in a certain sense, lower the bar, but I think in lowering the expectation bar, it is going to get more of you off the bench and into play in a productive way. And uh, in, in fact, I've had some people tell me already that just that point of view, the gardening versus harvesting, has really... I think the phrase he used was set me free from a kind of way of looking at it that had, had been restrictive and discomforting to the degree that you didn't get in play. And so maybe this is going to free some things up for you and you're ultimately going to be more effective by playing, a, in a sense, a smaller role. And I, I'm offering you with this revised objective now of engagement um, a game plan that will allow you to maneuver well. And it's a game plan that employs Paul's recommendation in Colossians 4, 
verse 5 and 6, to use wisdom towards outsiders, to be graceful in your communication, and respond to each person in the way that that person requires. And it seems to me the game plan that best suits that purpose and a number of others is a game plan that entails asking questions. The value of asking questions is that they are, uh, questions are polite, they draw another person out, they allow you to get information uh, of two different kinds, general information about the point of view, information about the rationale people might have or the reasons for the views that they hold, and, uh, and they give you a tremendous amount of protection because when you're asking questions, you're not putting your own views forward. And if you're not putting your own views forward, you're not making claims. And if you're not making claims, then you don't bear any burden of proof. And so consequently, you're in a very safe position to do this. And I hope that you're beginning to see a little bit in some of the illustrations that I've offered that even just asking the questions where you're not putting your own view forward, even the questions themselves serve to make an impact in people's lives to actually move them forward in a good way. Uh, here's another way I put it in terms of setting up our, our purpose or, or, or what we're shooting for. We are not going to be swinging for the fences. I don't even care if you get on base. I don't care about that. I just want you to get into the batter's box. And if you can get into the batter's box and using our, our game plan, then it's, you'll be surprised at, how, at when, uh, how many times you'll actually connect with the ball when you're not even trying very hard. And that's one of the neat things that I've discovered inadvertently by employing this game plan. I didn't think I'd be able to make, I wasn't aware, at least initially, how much progress actually can be made just by using questions that you're not trying to make a point with, you're just gathering information, the impact that it's going to have on other people. But now we're going to shift because I told you that I get, would give you a game plan that would allow you to converse with confidence no matter how little you knew. And those were the first two points. I said there was a third use to Columbo. And in the third use of Columbo, and I want to talk about that now, you have to know something. <laughs> you can't be a complete idiot. But it is great to know that you can employ this game plan really effectively and still be a complete idiot, isn't it? I mean, that's comforting to some of you, I'm sure. But there's more. That is, we can do, we can be, we can do more things with questions. And this is, brings us to the third use of Columbo. And I put this differently in the book. And, uh, and I found, but since I've written the book, I found it a better way, a little crisper way of putting this, okay? What is the third use of Columbo? The third use of Columbo is to make a point by using questions. You use questions to make a point. They're still questions. They're not rhetorical questions. You know, sometimes you throw out a rhetorical question that, you, that is, it means you don't expect people to want to, an to answer it. You're just kind of making a point with it. Speakers do that a lot, you know. These aren't rhetorical questions. These are questions you want the person to answer. But you have a goal for the question. You're using the question to make a point. Now, there's a couple of different ways that you may want to make a point with questions. Okay. Um, sometimes you're going to... Oh, and, and by the way... 
I hope you see that if, if you use questions to make a point, you have to have in your mind the point you're trying to make. That's why you need to know something to use Colombo in the third way. You need to know the point you're trying to make. Think of it like a, uh, you're shooting at a target and you've got arrows, and your questions are like arrows shooting at the target. You've got to know what the target is. So you ask your first two questions, and something may have come up in the conversation as you're gathering information that alerts you to a point you want to make, and then you decide to make the point by using a question if possible. I'll give you a lot of illustrations of this, so you'll see how this plays out. But you want to make your point by using a question if possible. So when you ask, what do you mean by that and how you come to that conclusion, you might be aware, oh, that's a problem. That, that's self-refuting. That's, that, that's misunderstanding the facts. That's, that's a bad lo logic and bad reasoning. No, that isn't going to work for a dozen reasons. Maybe you read books and you went to our website or whatever. Whatever information that you want to communicate next, you want to think about how to put it in question form. Why? For the exact same reason as you did the other things. When you ask a question, the ball is out of your court, it's in the other person's court. If you want to preach, you're preaching. Then when you're done preaching, it's, uh, what's next? They're just looking at you. And chances are they're going to say, no, you're wrong, I'm right. And so you kind of set up a confrontational situation there. Better to make your point with a question because when you ask the question, you toss, toss the ball into their court, it's their turn to answer. It's conversational. It's interactive. I mean, it's got all the advantages of that kind of thing. So let me give you a, a few examples of this. I, I, I mentioned earlier I wanted to get, and I can't remember why I wanted to get there, but it turns out to be a good illustration at this point anyway. I wanted to talk about the what I call a passive-aggressive tolerance trick. When people call you a name, intolerant, for example, this is the kind of thing that happens a lot nowadays. The way to respond is to always ask a question. And when they call you a name, you always ask the first Columbo question. And that question is, what do you mean by that? What do you mean by that? So I'm going to give you a bunch of illustrations now about how to use questions to make a point. And the first one is in dealing with challenges like this where people call you names. Now, just so you know, calling people names is bad manners. All right? It's also poor thinking. It's a, when somebody is having a, when you're having a discussion with somebody else on a controversial topic and you're giving reasons for your point of view and they call you a name, this is an informal fallacy that's got a name of its own and it's called... Ad hominem. You attack the man instead of attacking the idea. This is changing the subject. So this is bad all the way around. You don't want to do it, but people will do it to us all the time, and the prime example is you're intolerant. So when people call you names, what you need to do is you need to get a definition out on the table so you can work with it. The goal of doing this is to show, ultimately, that they are just calling names, they are not addressing the issue, okay? But there's more, there's a bigger problem when people call you intolerant, and you'll see it in just a moment. So people say you're intolerant, I say, what do you mean by that? And what they're responding is, what they'll respond is by saying, well, you think you're right, 
you've just made a moral claim or an ethical claim or a religious claim or something. Jesus is the only way. Homosexuality is wrong. Abortion's a mistake. Blah, blah, blah. Oh, you're intolerant. What do you mean by that? Well, you think you're right. You think you're right and other people are wrong. You're trying to force your views on other people. That's not tolerant. Okay, so now what have I got? I got a definition. I got a definition on the table. Intolerance in that kind of conversation means to them, in this moment, it's a distortion of the word tolerance or intolerance, but nevertheless, just, let's just take it as it is. Intolerance is thinking you're right over somebody else. I had one woman say, well, you think you have the corner on the truth. Okay, fine. Now I know what it is that you're objecting to. Now I need to ask you a question. I want you to think about this. If I'm making a case about something or making a point or offering my opinion and somebody calls me intolerant and what they are objecting to is that I think that I'm right and other people are wrong, what do you think about my view of my own statement? Do you think that when I make a claim about something ethical or religious or anything else for that matter, do you think when I share a point of view or a belief, do you think that I think I'm right? Yes! Of course! Look it, if I didn't believe that my beliefs were true, I would not believe what I believe. I would believe something else and believe they were, those things were true. So yes, I think I'm right. But here's the insight. I am not the only person in this conversation who thinks he's right. Guess who else thinks he's right? Everybody else in the entire world that has a point of view. Because nobody believes things they think are false. Now, they may be false. But they don't believe them thinking they're false. In fact, it's impossible to believe something and think it's false because believing just is holding that a thing is true. That's what a belief is, to hold that something true. And if you say, I believe it, but I, it's false, but then you don't believe it. What you believe is that it's false, and you believe you're right in that belief, if you catch my meaning there. So, my next step in this discussion is to point out that I'm not the only person that thinks he's right. And I ask the question to the other person. So he says, you're intolerant. Well, what do you mean by that? Well, you think you're right. I said, well, I do. Maybe I'm wrong. We can talk about it. I'm open to that. But what about you? Do you think you're right in this issue? Now, what's he going to say? No, I think I'm wrong in everything I believe. Of course he thinks he's right. Now, he might say this. Well, I think uh, that my beliefs are true for me. And this is a little bit of a postmodern two-step. But see, this is disingenuous because that is not what he believes. He believes his beliefs are true, period, which is why he's talking to you. And in fact, I asked him, if you think your belief is just true for you, why are you talking to me right now? I mean, I get the impression that you're correcting me, right? You're intolerant. And I shouldn't be, should I? I should be tolerant like you, right? Hold your views and be tolerant like, so you're correcting me. So it's not just true for you. You think I should be like you. No, I don't. Well, then why are we talking? By the way, that's a question, right? Is that a fair question? Yes. No, he thinks he's right. I think I'm right. He thinks he's right. So we both think we're right. This is very clear. Okay, final question. Why is it when I think I'm right, I'm intolerant? But when you think you're right, you're just right. What am I missing here? 
Obviously, I'm not missing anything. <laughs> he is. And I'll tell you what he's missing. He is missing the fact that everybody in the discussion has a point of view, and they both think there's right, they're right, so there's nothing wrong with thinking you're right. But what also he's missing is that in order to deal with the view that he doesn't like, he's changed the subject, and he is attacking the person rather than the person's views. Do you see that? Uh, Same-sex marriage, abortion, Jesus is the only way, blah, 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 blah. You're intolerant. You're a bigot. You're a narrow-minded. Whoa. What happened? Why did you just change the subject? What do you mean? Well, we were just talking about this issue, and now we're talking about my personality. Why did you change the subject? Now, that's a question, right? It's a question. Now, the ball's in his court, and... That is meant to, as a wake-up call. I actually was on a TV show once for an hour in Canada, primetime cable program called Test of Faith, and uh, I was arguing, uh, it, my position was against religious pluralism, that all religions lead to God, and we were trying to discuss that whole issue, and the panelists, a Sikh a Hindu pastor and a liberal Christian pastor from the United Church of Canada, were all coming after me because they believed all roads lead to Rome, Religiously speaking, I didn't believe so, and so they were calling me names. I'm intolerant, I'm narrow-minded, I'm arrogant. I said, you know, it's kind of interesting where this discussion has come. We first started talking about an idea, religious pluralism, and now we've kind of gotten off the track onto Mr. Kokel's personality. Mr. Kokel's intolerant or arrogant or whatever. Mr. Kokel's mean, I guess is what you're saying. I said, okay, how about if I just admit that I'm mean? If I admit to everybody that I'm a big meanie, can we just get off of this stuff and get back to talking about the issue of religious pluralism? You see, that was my appeal. But this kind of thing ha happens all the time. You try to address the issue, and they change the topic. So what I'm describing to you now is a dynamic you are going to encounter, as you, and you probably already have, as you engage with people, and I'm giving you a tactical way to get out of it. The dynamic is people attack the believer instead of the belief. That's called an ad hominem. It's bad thinking and it's bad manners, but everybody does it everywhere. It is the most common way of dealing with ideas that you don't, people don't like. Instead of addressing the issue, they beat up on people by calling them names. The preferred one now is no longer intolerant. It's bigot. And the person who claims that you're a bigot does not know what a bigot is. Because if they knew what a bigot was, they would realize that they are the ones acting like a bigot when they call you a bigot. Not the Christian who has a principled point of view on a moral issue. But just to make this point a little sharper, if a person called me intolerant, what if I just turned to them and said, and you're ugly. <laughs> and your mom dresses you funny. You know what? With, I wouldn't say that because that's not a legitimate response. But how is that different? Uh, they attack my character. I attack their looks. Neither of us are talking about the thing, right? Whatever it is that we were supposed to be discussing. This is just a red herring. It pulls you off the trail. It is a distraction. And these people do not know they're pursuing stupidity when they say that. And it is rank stupidity. Pardon me for using that word. I know parents don't like that. But that word is in the English language for a reason. 
that sometimes it applies, and this is one of them. I still call my kids don't use that. When you get grown up, you can use that word properly, but not when you're a kid. But the point is, this is foolishness. This is ridiculous. And we, are, we let people get away with it all the time. Now, we're not going to call them stupid. That's not how we're going to resolve it. But we're going to try to get them back on track and use the questions that I just offered. Let me run through it again in its complete form so you get it. You're intolerant. What do you mean by that? Well, you think you're right. Okay. Do you think you're right? Yes. Well, why is it when I think I'm right, I'm intolerant, and where you think you're right, you're just right? Again, not a rhetorical question. I'm waiting now for the person to answer. I want them to see that this is just name-calling, and I might explain it. How would you respond if I told you you were ugly? That might be something I'd ask. Well, I'd be mad. Why would you be mad? Because that's irrelevant. Okay. How is, how is me being a bigot or, or tolerant relevant to the discussion we were just having? having? about that issue. Notice every one of these things that I'm saying is a what? It's a question. It's a question to do what? Make a point. I'm not gathering information anymore. I could say, well, you're doing the same thing I'm doing. You're calling me names, so I'm going to call you names. That wouldn't be very productive. But instead, I'm asking questions. I'm holding that person's feet to the fire. Do you think they might be getting a little uncomfortable right about now? Yes, and good. They ought to be. Shame on them. Now, I'm not going to be nasty in the way I shame them, but I am going to hold them accountable for that by the questions I ask. Why, why did you change the topic? Why are you attacking my character now instead of addressing the issue? If I called you ugly, you would respond how? You'd be mad. Why? How is that different? You know, when Jesus at his trial was slapped, he did not turn the other cheek. Very interesting. What did he do? He said, if I have done wrong, bear witness to the wrong, and if I did not do wrong, then why did you strike me? He held that person accountable for what that person had done that was inappropriate. He didn't yell. He wasn't mean. He was, he was, he held them. So, I, I don't know why we can't say that to people. Adult to adult, why can't we say that? That's a way of, but using the questions, you have a tactical advantage to making the point. You first have to see the problem. Then you have to think about how you want to maneuver through that problem using the questions. And this is a little bit more advanced than what we covered so far. But it comes easier as time goes on. Sometimes you're going to use your questions to... The point that you're going to make is, is, is advanced your own point of view to some degree. So um, I was, after I wrote the Relativism, Relativism book with uh, Frank Beckwith, uh, I was asked by Barnes & Noble to do a presentation in a local uh, store in the San Fernando Valley. And I did my, you know, you do your pitch and there are chairs in the aisle and people come in and you sign some books and blah, blah, blah. It was a fairly small gathering. Um, and there was a fellow who came in from the stacks who'd heard me talking. And though the book is not about Christianity, it's about a, an idea about morality, whether it's objective or not. I, uh, he, he knew that I was a Christian, and so he asked me a question. He said, why is Jesus the only way of salvation? He told me, uh, I'm Jewish. I believe in God. I try to live the best way I can live. Why do I need Jesus? Now, this is a very, very important question to be able to answer. And a lot of Christians will be flummoxed because they're thinking, well, he's already got a religion, and he's a good guy. I don't know what to do with this anymore. Like if he was a jailbird or something like that, well, then I'd have something to say. But, uh, gee, I don't know what, he's a religious, 
That's because they do not understand the work of the cross or the nature of fallen humanity. So, I get to answer him. Now I'm going to use my questions to bring things out onto the table. Sometimes you're going to use questions to make a point by getting an admission from the other person about something that is going to be valuable for you to use, okay? That's what I did with the uh, passive-aggressive tolerance trick, you know, get the definition out there. Now I got it to work with. Same thing here, kind of gathering information. Do you mind if I ask you a few questions? He says, no, go ahead. First question, do you think that people who commit moral crimes ought to be punished? This illustration is in the tactics book, by the way. Do you think people who do bad things should be punished? He said, well, since I'm a prosecuting attorney, yeah. <laughs> I didn't know he was an attorney. I, that was a surprise to me. I got a little lucky there. But actually, most people have the sense that if you do bad things, you should pay for it. Great. I agree with you. So we got something on the table now. And we both agree on that. Fine. Second question. Have you ever done any bad things? Well, now this question's personal, right? But what, are, what do you think he answered? He said, yeah. Now, if you would have said no, I would have said, I want to talk to your wife or your kids. Now, he said, yeah, I guess I have. I said, so have I. We both agree with that, okay? But now, I want you to see where we've come. Now, there's two things on the table, right? We both believe that people who do bad things ought to be punished, and we both believe that we've done bad things, right? You know what I call that? I said to him, what's that? Bad news. Bad news. This is not good. If bad people get punished and we're bad people, that means we what? Get punished. I mean, this is not good news. And I said to him, it's as if we are, uh, uh, and by the way, do, do I need to tell this man he's a sinner? No, he just told me, didn't he? Do I need to tell him that he's under judgment? No, he told me. It's right out there. He gave me those pieces. Now, he wasn't thinking about that when he walked into the Barnes & Noble. But I asked questions about things that I, th I was pretty convinced he had deep convictions about. What I mean deep is that they were deep down inside, and most people have these, and if you ask the right question, they'll just surface. And then you got them. You can work with them a little bit. And I said, it says, if God is there in the dock, I'm, so, I'm sorry, as a judge, and we are in the dock, and he's about to lower gavel on both of us, because we know we're guilty, and we deserve what we're going to get. And God stops and pauses and says, by the way, fellas, are you interested in a pardon? <laughs> Does clemency sound attractive right about now? Well, when you know you're guilty, yes. And this, by the way, is the importance of communicating the bad news first before the good news. Now, this is controversial. In Christian circles, I don't know why it should be, because it's the way every single apostle preached the gospel in every single occasion in the book of Acts. Bad news, then good news. And incidentally, just FYI, you can do anything you want with this, and I know there are different ways to communicate the gospel, and I'm all in favor of that. But as for the disciples in the book of Acts, they did not mention the love of God a single time. Indeed, in the entire book of Acts, you will not find the book of love, uh, the word love anywhere. It's not there. Now, is God's love manifest there? Yes, but this wasn't the substance of their communication. They were taking a warning to people that God has appointed a man to judge, having given evidence for him by raising him from the dead. That was Paul in the Areopagus, and all the other sermons were the same way. But anyway, so there it is. 
I told this guy, are you interested in a pardon? Now, that was a rhetorical question. I, didn't mean, I wanted him to think about that. And I said, I'll tell you what God has done. God set up a rescue plan, became a man, and he stood in the dock for us. Jesus said, take me instead. We get out, he gets in, all of the anger of that just judge goes on to Jesus. Jesus took the punishment, he took the rap for our crimes, we go free. Tell you why you need Jesus, he's the only one who did that. You say no to Jesus, you're back in the dock. Either Jesus gets it or you get it, that's the deal. That's God's plan. His mercy is free. But if you reject his mercy, then you don't get mercy, you get justice. And you don't want justice. None of us want justice. Jesus is the only way of salvation because he's the only one who solved the problem. And it's a problem every person has, from the least to the greatest, from the, from the nastiest to the most religious person on earth. And somebody says, well, look at I'm no Hitler. My response is, good. I'm comforted. <laughs> but you're no Jesus Christ either, and Hitler's not the standard, is he? It isn't like, well, if I can do better than Hitler, I'm probably okay. You're not okay. You're a mess. We're all a mess. We're all in the same mess together. We need to be rescued by somebody who was not in a mess, the one man who had never sinned, the man, Jesus Christ, having provided proof by rising from the dead. And one week from this weekend, I think it is, right? week from tomorrow, we celebrate that. So Jesus is in a class by himself, and here I use these questions with this man to explain an answer to his question, why is Jesus the only way? And I get this stuff out there, so he can't debate whether he's a sinner under judgment. He told me. But he told me what, in the process of me asking those kinds of questions. So um, there, there's an example of me making a point with questions. Now, sometimes you're going to notice that there's a flaw in the point of view that a person is offered. And instead of pointing out the flaw directly, you, you're going to use a question. Notice the witch in Wisconsin. She was saying that if there is incest, this is a justification for taking the life of a child. Baby killing is okay in incest, okay? So I apply a tactic using a question. I apply a tactic that's in the book called taking the roof off. That is, I'm going to accept her point of view for the sake of argument. I'm going to say, okay, let's just say you're right. Let's give your view a test drive here and see where it goes. Here's where your view goes. I got a two-year-old that has been conceived by incest, and on your view, I should be able to kill this child. Are you comfortable with that? Because that's the logical conclusion of the view you offered. Now, I'm giving you more words than I actually used. I'm just fleshing it out a little bit for you. That's the nature of this particular tactical move, but I'm using a question to employ the tactic. Um, what, what do you say about this? Now the ball's in her court, and now she's stuck, because obviously... That application of her view leads to a ridiculous end. She's, she's, she's not going to have mixed feelings about it. She's not going to kill that baby. You know, so, so um, that's to get her thinking. So I use a question to expose a weakness or a flaw. Now, sometimes the weakness or a flaw, uh, the nature of the weakness or a flaw is that the person has a, um, it, there's a consequence in their view that they haven't thought about. And uh, this was one example of it. Let me give you another one on the abortion issue. I'm supposed to stand like 
between this red mark and this red mark, except for the center is right next to this red mark, so I've got to keep moving over here so the camera has me. Now the cameraman is saying, gee, I'm really glad he's staying with his marks, but he just spent like 30 seconds saying something stupid that I've got to edit out of the thing. So, <laughs> so a man comes up to me at a, a Ligonier conference many years ago, we have pro-life material on our table, and he, he walks up and he sees the pro-life material, and he's a Christian at this conference. And he says, well, you know what, I'm, uh, I, I'm, uh, I personally am pro-life. That is, I think abortion is wrong. But I, uh, I can't say for other people whether it should be wrong for them. I don't think we should have laws against it, because who am I to say, you know, what other people should have the liberty to do? Now, this is a view that a lot of people have. This is a, uh, called the modified pro-choice position. And a lot of people think it's kind of the middle road. I'm against abortion, but I think we should let people have them, and so we both get our way. A lot of politicians use this, and I'm just going to show you why this is really a barbaric way of thinking, all right? And, but I have to ask a question in order to bring something to the surface to be able to make my point. I always ask the question at this point. Remember the person says, I'm against abortion personally, but I don't think there should be laws against it. My question is, why are you personally against abortion? What is it about abortion that bothers you on a personal basis? And the answer he gave me is the answer people generally give. I actually think abortion is wrong. I think it kills an innocent human being. That's my view. But that's my own religious view. That's the view of my church, or however they want to put it. I shouldn't be forcing my view on other people. Okay, fine. Now I understand. I've asked the information gathering question. I have a clear view. Now I said to this man, let me repeat back to you what you just said to me, and you, you tell me what you think of your own view. I think you said that you actually do believe that abortion kills an innocent baby, and you also believe that women should be legally allowed to do that to their children. Is that right? He said, well, when you put it that way, and I said, put it what way? That's your view. That's your view. If I misunderstood your view, you're free to correct me right now, but I don't think I misunderstood anything. And he's shuffling back and forth on his feet, and he's, and he's very uncomfortable. And I just said, look, at, I, I, I'm not going to let you out of this. That is your view. And if it makes you feel bad, it should. For people who say, well, I'm personally against abortion, but I think it should be legal, I'm going to ask him, why are you personally against abortion? Well, if you really believe that abortion kills an innocent child, why would you say that women should be allowed to do that? Well, I'm personally against slavery, but I can't outlaw it. If you don't like a slave, don't own one. If you don't like slavery, don't buy them. What? This has nothing to do with that. The question is whether human beings are the kind of people who should be enslaved. And if they shouldn't be enslaved, neither should you have one or anyone else. By the same token, the nature of the question on abortion is the same thing. Now, that may not settle the issue for you, and I'm not meant to settle the issue on abortion, but I am simply saying that if your view is, I'm personally against it because I think it kills a child, but I think it should be legal, that is a barbaric point of view. And I hope you see that. So there's another example of finding a flaw and using, using uh, a question to, to bring that flaw to surface. Here's another one. Sometimes the flaw, by the way, is going to be a contradictory circumstance. That is, um, somebody's going to state something, and in the stating of the thing they state, they're actually creating a contradiction which falsifies their view. This is the suicide tactic. 
It's like somebody says, there is no truth. Really, is that true? But that's over with once you ask that question. It ought to be. Unfortunately for a lot of people, it isn't. They go, wait. Say that again. I'm a grad student. I can't get that kind of stuff. Okay. I'm having a conversation with a physical therapist. I was getting some work done on my back. And uh, his name was Gil. And he was a very easygoing, kind of open type person. He was uh, happy to talk about spiritual things, and we were carrying on, conversing. And, and then uh, a moral issue came up, and, I, and he asked me about that. I, I, I gave my point of view about that moral issue, and, and uh, he got annoyed at it. He said, you know, you Christians, um, you're usually nice people. In fact, he worked for one. The gal who owned the whole enterprise was a decent Christian woman. But yeah, pretty soon you start getting judgmental, is what he said. Now, Gil had just made a mistake. But he didn't know what the mistake was, and most of you don't know what the mistake was, but when you see it in a few minutes, I hope you'll never miss it again, because this kind of thing comes up all the time. I saw it, but I wanted to kind of uh, make it more obvious, so I, I'm, I'm going to call Gil out a little bit more, like, kitty, 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 you know, one of these things. <laughs> Got the big hammer here, you know. Uh, Gil... Gil, what's wrong with that? He said, you get judgmental. And he goes, it's wrong to judge. Okay, now maybe it's more obvious to you. What had he just done? He made a judgment, right? If it's wrong to judge, that itself is a judgment. Some of you are thinking, well, isn't it wrong to judge? Well, there are four different, at least four different kinds of judgments spoken of in the New Testament. Uh, one is prohibited. Three are commanded. And I think that is also in one of the chapters in the tactics book. I use it as an illustration. But in any event, um, this is a common notion that people have. Christians can't weigh in against a moral issue because now they're judging. And Jesus says, judge, judge not, Matthew chapter 7, verse 1. But I had a question for him. I said, Gil, if you think it's wrong to judge, which is what he had just said, then why are you judging me right now? Oh, I could have said, Gil, you're judging me. You're doing the very thing you told me not to do. Now, that would have been the same point, but, but in a declarative sentence, not interrogative. That is, for those who forgot their fourth grade grammar, it would be a declaration, not a question. And when I make a declaration, I lose a tactical advantage. But if I ask the question, I make the same point, but the ball is thrown back into his court. Gil, if it's wrong to judge, then why are you judging me right now? And Gil had never heard anything like that before. And he drops back, and he's, he's thinking about what I said. He's trying to regroup a little bit. And he's, I can hear him kind of mumbling to himself, and he's going over what he just said. And he's trying to think of a way to get out of this. And No, that's not going to work. How do What? Well, okay. Uh, he comes back, he says, okay, I guess I was judging. I guess it's okay to judge, That's what he said. <laughs> but, he said, he's not going to let me off that easy, but it's wrong to push your morality in other people. But when you push your morality in other people, then you cross the line. Now, he thought he'd improved his situation. Okay, I'll give you the judgment thing, but the morality deal you can't push on other people. Now, let me ask you a question. Had he bettered his position? Not one whit. What do you think I had in line for him next? A what? A question. And my question was, Gil, is that your moral point of view? 
that one should not push his morality on other people. Is that your morality? And he, God bless him, blithely said, yes. <laughs> and so I said, well, then, Gil, then why are you pushing your Notice how I had to get that clarification. That's a, what do you mean by that question? Now I could just say, well, then why are you pushing your morality on me right now? Oh, yeah. Oh, gosh. All right. Uh, uh, he makes a couple of false starts. He can't get going. He keeps falling into the same trap. Finally, he gets really frustrated, and he says, it's not fair. I said, what do you mean it's not fair? I, I can't find a, say to, a way to say it that it sounds right. You know, he thought I was playing a word trick on I said, Gil, it's not a trick. It's not a word trick. You're doing the very thing you're telling me not to do. That's it. It's self-refuting. And I've had people, I promise you, in situations like this, that say, wait a minute. Now you got me all confused. And I said, no, you were confused when you started. <laughs> I've just done you a favor. I've shown you how confused you were in this thing. So we can talk about that straight now. But notice that that's a kind of a suicide tactic. His view, at least in practice, is self-refuting. And so I'm just using a question now to point that out. I see that it's self-refuting, and a lot of the other tactics are ways to help you see where a point of view goes wrong. Then you try to find a question that you could put in position in order to, um, to exploit the problem that you happen to see. So here's another example. I had a young lady who came to me. Uh, she was a university student, and she was an anthropology major, and her anthropology professor um, was very supportive of her Christianity until the anthropology professor found out that her Christian student wanted to be a missionary which means going to foreign cultures and changing other people's religious beliefs away from their indigenous beliefs and importing this Western thing into them. And this really bothered her professor. And her professor told her, she said, well, it's wrong to try to change other people's religious point of view. And so this was her appeal to try to dissuade the student from going overseas and being a missionary. And the, the student took this seriously and came to me with the question. And she says, now, how do I answer that question? What do I do now? She thought she was stuck, but that's because hadn't, I hadn't written the book yet. Now, I just want you to think, just based on what we have covered so far, do you guys see any problem with the charge that the, that the uh, professor made that it's wrong to try to change other people's religious point of view? What's the problem with that? Just somebody just... She's trying to change her own student's religious point of view because Christianity is a, a missionary religion, right? It's, this is what we do. It's the Great Commission. So this professor is doing the very thing that she's saying she ought not do when she's saying the very, that very thing, self-refuting. Now, how do you exploit it? You exploit it with a... Question. So now you just might be thinking to yourself, what question might you ask under those circumstances? Don't say it, because I'll give it to you, but I just want you to do the work in your head right now. What question might you ask that might exploit that problem? How about this? Professor, are you trying to change my religious point of view right now? That's a simple question, right? Ball's in professor's court. Now what's the professor going to say? She can't say anything 
except for, yeah, I guess I was. Because she was trying to change her religious point of view, she was doing the very thing she was claiming was not supposed to be done. Another example of suicide, and I have in the book four different, I think there are four different kinds of suicide, four different versions or ways, species, so to speak, of a self-refuting argument, and they have, and I give examples of these things. But I hope you're, you're starting to get a little bit of the rhythm. The more that you are able to see that a point of view has gone south, uh, and maybe this is based on other training that you have, what you want to do now is you want to start employing a question to demonstrate the problem that the person's having. You want to use the question to exploit a weakness or a flaw. Okay? Let me just see if I've got a couple other illustrations here that might be helpful in this regard. All right, I'll give you, oh, I'll give you two. Two more, and then I want to talk to you about how to improve your Colombo tactic. I was challenged uh, at a Q&A session. Uh, to, uh, and the challenge uh, was, was from an atheistic perspective. It was actually a, a pastor who asked the question on behalf of an atheist friend of his. But the que here is the challenge. It wasn't actually a question. Prove to me that God exists. Prove to me that God exists. So here I am on the stage, or in front of this group, it was a smaller group, and here's the challenge. To me, this is kind of like um, you meet somebody who's a professional comedian, and you say, you're a comedian? Really? You're a stand-up comic? Yeah. Say something funny. <laughs> Come on, make me laugh. Uh, 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 like that. So I'm the professional apologist. I'm going to prove to him that God exists. So what do I do? It put me on the spot. Now, I'm not afraid of the question, but I did point out that the question puts me at a little disadvantage the way the question is asked. Because the question, there are actually two li little items in there that are troublesome. Maybe you should think about Prove to me that God exists. Here's the two things that are troublesome for me to, in terms of answering. Prove. Prove. I don't know what that person means, prove, by proof. I don't know what kind of proof would be adequate for that person. If I leave that word unchallenged, I could talk all day long, and the atheist can just simply say, well, that's interesting, but it's not what? It's not proof. Well, if I don't know what proof actually is in his mind, then I'm never going to be able to satisfy that. So that's one disadvantage. Here's the other disadvantage. To me, prove to me. Give me something that is adequate to change my mind. I don't know if anything's going to be adequate to change your mind. One atheist once said, you know, if God would just appear to me and talk to me, then I'd go to God, you know. And then some wag responded, no, you wouldn't go to God. You'd go to a psychiatrist is what you'd do. Because people will rationalize anything. I don't know what's going to convince him. So I said, since proof is ambiguous and to me is just out of reach, can you rephrase your question? And he says, can, okay, can you give me any, any legitimate reasons that God exists? Well, that's a lot better. I guess legitimate reason, that might be a, a, a fudge word a bit, but at least I can work with that, okay? That's a lot less demanding than prove. I said, sure. Do you mind if I ask you a few questions? So now I'm going to present my case for God with this person in the Q&A, 
um, by using questions, and I used this exact line of questioning with a student at the University of Toronto a month and a half ago, because it came up during a Q&A session in, in the gallery after my talk. And uh, some of the questions are going to be simple. Here's the first one. Do you believe things, ex do you think things exist? Yeah, things exist. Okay, good. Yeah, that's a simple one. Second question. Have they always existed or did the things that exist came, come into existence at some point in time in the past? One in the past is a matter of debate. That's not my question. Is the universe eternal or not? The answer, no, things came into existence. There's almost nobody who's thought about the issue anymore that believes in an infinite universe cosmology. Everybody believes the universe came into existence at some point in the past. This is usually called the Big Bang, and after that is history, and before that was nothing. It's kind of the way they look at it. So here's my question then. Okay, we both agree on this. We got it down. What caused the universe to come into existence is my third question. What caused it? Now, I know you might balk at this one, but there's all, it's not too hard. There's only two options. Either something caused the universe to come into existence or nothing <laughs> caused the universe to come into existence. That's it. Either something or no thing. Law of excluded middle, law of non-contradiction, that's all you're left with. Okay, so what's your answer? Now the atheist is at a really hard spot at this point because I have moved to this alternative by the fierce progression of rigid logic there is no way out. He's got to say something or nothing given the fact of the beginning of the universe, however you want to characterize that beginning. Big Bang cosmology is the classic way. Okay, now what? He can say something or nothing. He doesn't want to say something. Because if the physical universe is the result, then the something that caused it has to be outside of the physical universe, outside of time, outside of space, really powerful and really smart. Now that's pretty close to God case you hadn't connected the dots. And he doesn't want to go there. But what's his alternative? If it's not something, it's what? Nothing. And when I say nothing, I mean no thing. That the universe popped into existence without cause. Now who believes reasonably, rationally, that that's the best answer? And here I want to go back to the conversation at the table the dinner table where the young man, the 15-year-old, declared he was no longer a believer in God. He was an atheist because there was no good reason. There was no rationality. This was irrational to believe in God. And I talked about this thing. A big bang needs a big banger. Now, you need to know that he wasn't receptive to anything that I had to say. He just was completely belligerent and brushing it off. But I did ask this question. I said, we were sitting in the, in the dining room, and then there was a small foyer, and there was a front door there. I said, what if you heard somebody knock at the front door? Uh, let me rephrase that. What if you heard a knock at the front door? What would you presume? Would you think the knock knocked itself? Or would you think that someone did the knocking? Especially if it was a now you got the design argument in with the cosmological argument, you know. So uh, what would you do? Oh, that's ridiculous. So he completely brushed me off. But do you see how the common sense reaction, if you hear a knock on the door, is to presume the knock was caused by a cause that was adequate to the effect, right? 
and you'd probably answer the door because you didn't think, you wouldn't think that the knock knocked itself. And by the same token, the Big Bang didn't bang itself. The Big Bang needs a big banger, right? Now, this is common sense. Things don't just jump into existence for no reason out of nothing. Honey, I saw a red Corvette in the garage. Where'd that come from? Just popped into existence. <laughs> there it was. See these keys? They popped into existence in my pocket. Can you believe it? No, nobody's going to believe that. It's ridiculous. Our uniform experiences that affects have causes that are adequate to them. And the same thing, this is the basic cosmological argument. Why is the universe here? Something caused it that is adequate to the effect. That's it. Now, here's the P.S. on this particular event, the young man at the dinner party. And this, it's like, this is, only God would do this kind of thing. So I make this illustration. We finish dinner. We're done with the conversation. We move down to other things. We're eating dessert. And lo and behold, what do we hear from the front door? I mean, we got, they, people got doorbells in California. I don't know about Texas. We got doorbells. You know, nobody knocks on the door. I do know about Texas. Yeah. It's probably not a good idea to insult the audience, right? So, especially when the chances are pretty good they're carrying guns. You hear the knock on the door, and the kid across from me, his head goes up like this, and he looks, and he said, who's, who's there? And I said, Nobody. <laughs> now, here's the mo important thing. What did the atheist do? The atheist got out of his chair, and he answers the door. Because the odds-on favorite is that somebody was knocking. The knock didn't knock itself. And by the same token, the chances are odds-on favorite that the universe didn't create itself, the Big Bang didn't bang itself, but rather there was a Big Banger that banged the universe into existence, and we actually have a record of that. And the record goes like this, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. You see, our story starts with an empirically verifiable fact. Well, that God did it is not part of the empirical thing, but that's part of the conclusion of sound reasoning from the fact of the origin of the universe, which is why the cosmological argument is a powerful one especially today, when infinite universe cosmologies have been destroyed by modern science. So that's an ally for us. But notice how I use the questions. I had a line of thinking. I knew where I wanted to go. I wanted to trade on the cosmological argument, which I understood. But I, but I got to it by getting responses to questions that got information on the table, and then the final question that leaves the person with two choices, which are the only logical choices, which seem to favor my point of view, not his. Now, what's the point of, what are they going to do at this point? I'll tell you what that, that uh, the person, the, the young man who is the atheist at the uh, University of Toronto said. He started talking about the, uh, the quantum vacuum and uh, how Lawrence Krauss, the physicist, has showed that the universe can come out of the quantum vacuum. Just let me tell you something. The quantum vacuum is not a vacuum. If you think of vacuum as a bunch of nothing, the quantum vacuum is something. The question is, where did the quantum vacuum come from? Once you get the stuff, maybe other stuff can come from the original stuff. But where did you get the stuff to begin with? It's like the scientist who's got this 
he's got this, uh, this bet with God that he can make life like God made life out of dirt, and then God, he, okay, God made life out of dirt so he can make life out of dirt. And so God says, okay, and he grabs a handful of dirt, you know, to make life out of it, and God says, wait a minute. And the scientist says, what? He says, you've got to get your own dirt. All right? So, you know, you've got to start with something. And he's starting with the quantum vacuum. All right? And I'm saying, well, wait, you've got to get your own dirt, man. Your quantum vacuum came into existence, too. My question is about what came before the quantum vacuum. And he wasn't going for it. And finally he said, this is what he said. He said, well, I'm going to stick with the scientific answer. You can stick with your religious answer. And he sat down. And I said to the audience, addressing him, but you never gave me a scientific answer. You never gave me an answer to the question, where did everything come from? You never addressed it at all. So that was the end of that conversation, and this is what often happens. Okay. But notice how I took complex issue, a difficult issue, really tried to simplify it. I had some training, I had some information, and then I tried to put it into questions to make it uh, more accessible by the rank and file. Okay, one more illustration. Let's go back to the professor's ploy. All of these are examples, by the way, of using questions in the third sense to make a point. Lots of times to exploit a weakness or a flaw. You got to see the flaw. Once you do it, then you try to uh, arrange a sequence of questions that will get you where you want to go. All right? How are we doing? Are we hanging in there? Are we a little sleepy? Uh, yeah, okay. All the people who are awake clapped. The people who are not awake are still asleep, you know. You got to clap louder. Okay, good. Thank you. Um, so let's go back to our professor and the professor's ploy. The professor says, well, the Bible's a bunch of fables. You might ask the question, well, what do you mean by that? You get some more information. How'd you come to that conclusion? Professor says, well, I know it's a fable because there are miracles in the Bible. Are there miracles in the Bible? Sure. Okay. And professor, so I'm role-playing a little bit here. And professor, I agree there are, but why, how does that show that it's a fable? Well, miracles don't happen. Now, what has the professor just done? He's made a what? He's made a controversial claim. And if he makes a controversial claim, then what do we know about his responsibility? He bears a what? A burden of proof, okay? So what's our question for burden of proof? How'd you come to that conclusion? All together now. How did you come to that conclusion? Just got to practice here. It's easy to forget. I know it was just 15 minutes ago, but you know. <laughs> the mind is a very terrible thing that you wasted, or however that goes. Anyway, so, he, uh, so he, now he's got to bear the burden of proof, and I'm going to ask a question. Since he says uh, miracles don't happen, well, how do you know miracles don't happen, Professor? And then he says, well, science has proven that miracles don't happen. Now this is another claim. And I happen to know that this claim is false. Not only do I know that it's false, that science hasn't proven that miracles can't happen, I know that it's impossible for science to accomplish that. Because science is not capable as a knowledge discipline of inveighing against the existence of supernatural realities. It is not possible to do that. Science cannot tell you anything in the negative about the immaterial realm because it is a discipline that is meant to measure the material realm. 
And here's an illustration that I've used lots of times to make the point. Can you weigh a chicken with a yardstick? Can you weigh a chicken with a yardstick? Now, in California, they've got all those engineers out there, and they all want to make a balance beam out of it. That's not what I'm talking about. If, can you take a yardstick the way in a yard, and use it the way it was intended to be used and get the weight of a chicken? Of course, the answer is no. You get the length of a chicken, not the weight. Now, if you can't get the weight of a chicken from a yardstick, does this indicate that the chicken doesn't weigh anything? And the answer is no, of course not. It, you're just using the wrong tool. You have to use a different tool to get that particular detail about a chicken, the weight. And in the same way, science is like a measuring tool that measures one kind of thing, but it doesn't measure other kinds of things. It measures things in the physical world. It does not measure things in the immaterial world. It is not designed to do that. Now, I do think it is possible, and I just gave an example of it a few moments ago, to look at physical evidence and infer something from the physical evidence that has to do with the non-physical world. Universe comes into being, since we know about cause and effect, then something non-physical had to cause it to come into being. I think you can do that with scientific evidence, but what you can't do is you can't say, look at all the scientific realm and then say there is nothing outside of the material realm. Science is not capable of doing that. And when scientists or atheists or skeptics weigh in like that, you know that they've already made a factual mistake. This doesn't prove that God exists or souls exist or, or morals exist or anything outside of the physical world exists. It demonstrates that this is the wrong way to try to disprove their existence. It's like uh, I read in Time Magazine a number of years ago where they were doing a whole issue on the issue of consciousness. Uh, and the, what is consciousness? Our awareness of ourselves, what is that? Now what scientists want to do is they want to reduce it to something physical. The problem is it can't be reduced. Because consciousness is not physical. It does not extend in space. It doesn't respond to the laws of physics and chemistry. It is, it is, consciousness is the awareness of our invisible self. It's the awareness of our own souls. And we're all aware of that. Now, there may be chemical things going on, but the consciousness itself, which is real, Is, is not physical. I, I just paused for a moment. A, a new atheist, Daniel Dennett, this is where it's come. It's gotten this bad. New atheist, Daniel Dennett, when confronted with the problem of consciousness, which clearly isn't physical, has concluded that consciousness is an illusion. Consciousness is an illusion. They can't make it physical, so they just, well, it's an illusion. Now, he thinks he's gotten himself, out, uh, you know, he, he's fixed this problem. No, he hasn't. Two problems. To say consciousness is an illusion and it is the ordinary experience of every human being that ever lived on the face of the earth is to say that everybody that's ever lived has been mistaken about their own self-awareness, which is as radical. But there's another problem. It's self-refuting. To say that consciousness is an illusion is self-refuting. It commits suicide. Now, some of you are thinking, okay, well, how does that do that? Well, you just chew on it for a moment. Here's the question I'd ask if somebody said that to me. I'd say, what is an illusion? Well, an illusion is uh, being appeared to falsely. That means in your mind, you experience something that is not actually, truly, factually happening. In my what? In your mind. I thought the mind is the thing that's the illusion. 
You guys catching on to this? You have to have a mind in order to have an illusion. The soul can't be an illusion because what's having the illusion? Minds have illusions. The minds have to be in place to even have an illusion to begin with. Therefore, the notion that the consciousness is an illusion is self-refuting. Illusions are conscious states, for goodness sake. Okay. So, back to the Time Magazine article. They don't know what consciousness is, right? Uh, but they know what it's not, and this was in the article. At the end of the article, they said, we know what it's not. There is no little um, guy inside your head that's running everything. You know, there's no kernel of awareness, is the way they put it, that is running the show. Uh, the light is on, but nobody's home, basically. There is no soul. Verbatim, this is what they said. Now, how do they know there is no soul? It's a radical claim. We don't know what consciousness is, but it's not a soul. There's none of those soul things. How do you know? Here's what they said. Scientists have been looking for it for 100 years and haven't been able to find it. Category error, right? That's like, I've got, got my metal detector out. I can't find that piece of paper anywhere, man. <laughs> Second reason. There is no conceivable space in the soul, in the brain, for the soul to fit. No space in the brain for the soul. That's a quote from the article. That's like, what? That's like saying, you know, you told me there was an invisible man in your house. I didn't see him anywhere. I looked everywhere. I couldn't see him. Well, look, that doesn't prove an invisible man exists, but it sure shows that this is the wrong way to, to prove that one doesn't exist. I didn't see him. If your soul does exist, it's not a material thing. It doesn't need any space in your brain to fit. It, does, it isn't located in space like a pea is in a pod. That isn't the way souls are. Whether they exist or not is a different kind of discussion, but this is a foolish way. Okay, now I, you got the information, because we're going back to the professor. The professor says the Bible's a bunch of fables. Why? It's got miracles in it. Well, what's the problem? Miracles don't happen. How do you know? Science has shown that miracles don't happen. False statement. Okay, now, as I'm a student there, I have a final question. Professor, can you please tell the rest of the class exactly how science has shown that miracles are not possible. Sounds of what? Silence, because that's what you're going to get. There is no answer to that question because science hasn't shown that. And in that situation, if you're a student, you have just made big points, ideological points, is, is, is my point here, Big points with regard to this issue with all of the other students in the classroom because the silence that follows your question says volumes even though you have not argued your point. You haven't argued with the professor at all. You've been a good student the whole time. That's the power of a tactical approach, all right? Now, I want to tell you how you can improve your, your tactics, particularly your Colombo tactics. And there are, some of you are thinking, wow, he just told all these stories and he's really quick on his feet. He's clever. And it always goes really nice for him. Well, let me just tell you a secret because I don't want you to have that impression. I don't consider myself quick on my feet. And I'll tell you why it looks that way in a minute and it's something you can do. But it doesn't always go nice and tidy. Some of the illustrations, the conversation with the witch in Wisconsin, that was pretty straightforward. Other conversations I have, they, they don't look pretty. They... <laughs> They, they look really messy. And the reason is, is because life is messy. 
And so you can use your, your tactical approach and it can be helpful to move forward. But this is not going to guarantee that every single conversation is going to go like clockwork and it's going to be wonderful and it's going to be great. It doesn't work that way because reality is messy. But it's a lot less messy when you have a game plan that can actually produce something. So I don't want you to walk out of here thinking that this is a perfect method and Kogel always does it right. And then when you get to do it, you get yourself in a bind and it doesn't work just like the stories that you messed up and so there's something wrong there and that's probably you. No, it, I mess up too. The more you do this, the easier it gets. And it's not hard to even start. But sometimes you go nowhere. Sometimes you're kind of going, uh, uh, what next? And you feel a little dumb, and then you don't say anything more. You just move on. And other times, it's absolutely golden the way God works things out, and you have something productive that you would have never accomplished unless you'd been able to get into the batter's box with the game plan that I've, I've provided here. Okay? But you can get better at this easily. And uh, I do not consider myself quick on my feet, generally speaking, what I have done is I have prepared in advance for the challenges I think I might encounter. When you're under pressure, you're not going to be very effective in that circumstance if you haven't planned in advance. So how can you plan in advance? Well, you plan when you're not under pressure. And when are the times you're not under pressure? Either before or after. <laughs> Either before or after. So, before you get into engagement, you might just think of the kinds of things that you've been confronted with in the past. Or maybe you've learned something that's a flaw about some point of view that you've, you've addressed with somebody. Now you can think, what is a questioning approach that I could think of right now to put into place? If they were to ask me this, or challenge me this way, or offer that point of view, what question would I ask? If I've just read in a chapter in a book on apologetics or gone to the apologetics club or something and learned a way to deal with this issue, oh, yeah, I can see. That's wrong. That isn't going to work. All right, now what question or questions or line of questioning can I think of in advance that when this comes up next, I can employ? Well, you think of that. And if you need to, write it down. But I'll tell you what you got to do is you got to practice it. You just got to practice it. So what if somebody says, prove to me God exists? Oh, gosh, I said, well, do you think things exist? Yeah, yeah, I'll say, yeah. Did they always exist? No, no. Said, what caused them? Boom, boom. Oh, okay, I got it. Practice that a couple times. I practiced it. Now it's there. When it comes up, I know what I'm going to say. I'm not caught by surprise. Oh, my gosh, what next? People are listening. Can't remember what the guy said. Oh, uh, call, call, help, you know. No, it's there because you just practice it. If you're sales, in, in sales, you know what this is because you've got to already do it in many of your professions. So you're an attorney, you do anything in public. Uh, look at it. When I was a teenager, I used to write down script before I called a girl on the phone. I was nervous. And actually, I still do that when I get a radio interview um, because a lot of guys start, they get introduced on a radio and they say, I'm really glad to be here, you know, pleased to meet you. And I, to me, I think that's a very lame way of, of everybody seems to say that and you lose a good start. It's a poor launch. So I want to say something that's meaningful, but it doesn't sound trite. So I write it down on the paper. I am so glad you called me on this issue, Fred. I'm looking forward to our conversation. Well, I got it written down so I can say it with gusto like I know what I'm talking about. But I'm cheating. I got my crib sheet right there in front of me. I'm practicing in advance. I do this all the time. 
So if you can practice beforehand, you think of beforehand by yourself with somebody else, how, do I, how can we employ the knowledge that we have and make questions out of so the questions are ready on our lips when this thing comes up, okay? Now, what if it turns out that you've already had a, an encounter and it didn't go well? Well, you're in a great position now to look back after the event and say, that didn't go very well. What might I have asked instead? And then put that in your mind and practice it. So before and after, you have opportunities to speak to an issue or to practice how you would address an issue and um, come up with those questions that will prepare you. Now, about two years ago, I was in the state of Indiana, and I gave a Sunday service on the Colombo tactic. It was 45 minutes. It was very abbreviated, as you can imagine. Just the Colombo two-step, I call it. And the pastor comes up afterwards. Let's close in prayer. That means I get to walk down and go out the aisle and get in the, in, in, in the front of the church so that when people are, are coming out, I can shake their hands. You know, it's just standard deal, okay? And as I go out there, I meet a girl before the prayer is ended. She's leaving early. She shakes my hand. She thanks me for the Colombo teaching I just did and then identifies herself. Hi, I'm a Christian and a Buddhist, and a pagan. And I said, now remember, my teaching about Colombo is still bouncing off the walls of this church. That's how recent it was, right? And I said, well, it sounds to me like you don't understand those religions very well. Is that a question? That's an insult. That's not a question. I mean, I stuck my foot right in my mouth right after I had given a talk about being a good ambassador and asking questions. And then she says to me, she didn't take offense, but she says, well, I think I do understand those religions pretty well. And I, at that point, I was able to get my bearings and get my feet under myself, and I asked a question. And here's the question I asked. I said, what do you think Jesus would have said about your comment? Is that a good question? Yeah, I think so. Now, she said, well, I think Jesus would have been just fine with it. And then the mob came out of the church, and she got swept away. So I was not able to pursue this, but afterwards I thought about it. I took instruction from my foolish comment, you know, like I, I'm a trained professional. I still screw up. But I thought, if I had more time with her, what second question might I have asked? Because she was off on the wrong trail. I knew that. She was not representing Jesus accurately. I think Jesus would have been fine. And then I thought of my question. I could have asked, can you cite anything that Jesus said that would have given you that impression? Now we've got to go to the man himself, right? And I know the gospels well enough, that, and Jesus' theology well enough, that she's not going to find anything that's going to, could be twisted into Jesus was a pluralist. He was the narrow gate guy. Remember that out of the Sermon on the Mount? Not the wide gate guy. Narrow gate leads to life. Wide gate leads to destruction. All who came before me were thieves or robbers. You know, this kind of stuff. So, but now I'm prepared. I wasn't able to do that with her at the time, but I was prepared. Now, if it comes up again, when somebody says that kind of thing, I can ask the question. How do you think Jesus would respond? Oh, he's fine. Really? Could you show me anything? I would say that. So, that's how you get to be fast on your feet. <clears throat> you prepare in advance. When I walked out of the, uh, the store there, um, 
There's a grocery store right next to where the witch was in Wisconsin. My wife and I got groceries, and then we went by, and she was still at her booth there. And as we walked by, she waved, and she said, have a nice day. And we said, have a nice day, which is a good sign because we had a friendly conversation, no hard feelings. It was never any tension. Have a nice day. And then I got in the car, and, I, and as I was driving, I started to think about, gee, you know, maybe I could have said something to her that might have sparked a little bit more conversation. And I thought of her parting remarks, have a nice day. And it occurred to me, I could have gone back to her and said, you know what, that's, thank you for saying that, but it strikes me as a little bit odd. Well, what do you mean? Well, in our conversation, you said it was okay to kill babies, right? And then you say, have a nice day. What if I said, um, I think it's fine to burn witches. Have a nice day. You know. Just something I thought of. I haven't been able to use it yet, you know, but it did come to mind. Now, sometimes people will ask me, there's a little segment of how you can improve your own Columbo tactic before you get into an encounter or after you've had maybe a less than stellar performance in an encounter. You ask yourself, what questions might I ask? You role play it, maybe with another person, maybe by yourself, and you keep doing that until it's kind of second nature. This is very easy to do. I do it all the time. I, I, look, at I, I, I hear something on the radio. I turn the radio off, and I'm at it. I'm talking to the radio. That's not even on. I'm asking my questions. I'm thinking about what I'm going to say. I, I watch Pierce Morgan, very rarely as it turns out, but my mother-in-law who used to live with us, she'd have him on, you know, and I'd go by, and he just makes me angry. This is why I don't like watching him, but I, I saw his encounter once with a Christian person, and it was the issue is homosexuality, and so I thought, if I were sitting there and he banged me with that challenge, what would I say? And, you know, I've been in some circumstances like that. I did a one-hour uh, national t TV de debate with Deepak Chopra. So I had to prepare in advance for the things that I'm going to say when they raise particular issues so that I'm on the spot with it, and you can do exactly the same thing. You practice in advance. Now, what do you do when somebody starts using the Colombo tactic on you? Now you know what it is, and you know the tactical power that it can have to make a difference in conversations, and it is really really powerful. What if somebody starts using Columbo on you? Well, here's my response. Remember there were three uses of Columbo. The first use was to gather information and you use the question, what do you mean by that or some version? Do you think I mind if somebody asks me, Kokel, what do you mean by that? That's music to my ears. Have a seat. Get a cup of coffee. I will tell you all about it. No, that's good news to me. I don't mind telling people what I, what I think or what I believe. Uh, and I'm not afraid to do that because most of the things that I have strong convictions about, I've done a little thinking about. So I have something to say about these things. Now, if you are afraid of somebody asking you a question, what do you mean by that, regarding some important issue you hold to be true, then guess what? You've got some homework to do. Because you should know what you mean about the things that you hold to be really significantly true. You should know that. So, bone up on that. What about the second use of Columbo? Reversing the burden of proof. What if somebody were to say to me, well, how did you come to that conclusion regarding some claim that I made? Do you think that I mind somebody asking me, how did you come to that conclusion? Sit down. Have a cup of coffee. No, I don't mind that at all. In fact, I'm too inclined to, to talk. I'm inclined to talk too much. 
And uh, I love to talk about those kinds of things. So I'm not worried about those things. And if you're worried about a point of view that you have, that you don't know if it's well enough justified that you can answer that question, how'd you come to that conclusion or some version, well, then you've got some homework to do there too. It's the third use of Columbo that really is the more dangerous or problematic. Because even if you know your own views and your reasons for them, and you can answer those questions if they came up, you are still vulnerable to somebody asking questions where they're trying to set you up to make a point. And sometimes as they're asking questions, you're aware of that. You're feeling like, all right, this is a setup. I'm being led down the primrose path, and I don't want to go there because I don't know what's waiting around the corner when he may take my head off, but I don't know how to get out of it. And the, and the way to get out of it is actually quite simple. If a person is asking questions to make a point, that is, they're leading to a particular point of view that they're trying to communicate, and it, that's the way it seems to you, and a lot of times you can notice that, you can stop them in the middle of their questions. Actually, you don't even have to stop them because they stop when they ask you a question. And so, if this is true, do you think this, and then this, and then this, and then bang, you got it. Don't want that. Okay, when they say this or this, when you realize what's going on and it's your turn to talk, you say, wait a minute. You know, it seems like you're using your questions to make a point, which is okay. Nothing wrong with that. But you know what I'd rather do? I'd rather, instead of answering all these questions, I'd rather you just made your point and then let me respond if you'd like. So what you're doing is unveiling the tactic and you're showing it for what it is. You're not complaining. You're not finding fault. You're just saying, I'm not going to play. Sounds like you want to make a point with your questions. All right, I understand that, but I'd rather not answer all the questions. I'd like to hear your point. So can you just offer it? Now, what's he going to say? No. No, you've just taken the tactical advantage away from him. And then he can make his point, and then you're free to respond if you like. You are completely responsible for your side of the conversation. You don't have to go where you don't want to go. You don't have to answer questions that you don't want to answer. You don't have to take challenges from the professor if you're not willing to deal with those challenges or capable at that moment. You're in charge of yourself. It's okay to say no. No, thank you. Not right now. And in this case, if somebody's using the questions, you could say, you know, I'd rather not do that. You do have a point to make. I want to hear your point. What is it? That's how you get out of that. Now, what if somebody did that to me? Because they, they might, and I'm using my questions. And, and, and what would I do if they said, I think you're trying to make a point with questions, and don't use the questions, just make your point? What would I do? I'd make my point. I would lose my tactical advantage at that point, but I'd just make my point and move forward from there. So there you have a game plan. There you have an attainable goal, put a stone in their shoe. You have a, 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 an altered perspective of the enterprise. We're not going to really think about harvesting. That'll kind of take care of itself. We're going to think about gardening. We're going we're gonna to we're gonna think about getting off, uh, off the bench and getting up in the batter's box, and now we've got a bat. Well, that's not a good metaphor. Now we've got a game plan. Let me just switch my metaphors. Now we've we got, we got, <laughs> we got a game plan, and the game plan entails using questions. We're going to use questions to gather information. Model question is audience participation time. What do you mean by that? 
We're going to use questions to reverse the burden of proof model. Question is, how'd you come to that conclusion? We're going to use questions to shoot at a target, to make a point. Now we're going to have to figure out what kind of point we're going to make. Okay? And then instead of making the point directly, we're going to try to find a way to question our way into that point. We also learned a little bit about how we can um, improve on our Columbo, ta Columbo tactic. Uh, we've learned about how by practicing in advance and, and, uh, and finding out the questions, role-playing it a little bit so that we're kind of psychologically ready if the thing comes up. And uh, we also learned how to defend against the Columbo tactic when used against us. This is a really solid game plan. The question at this point is whether you're willing to put it into play. That's all. And what I said uh, earlier this morning, you might consider now, you might just think about taking a week, a month, and all you're going to do is ask the first question. If you commit yourself to start doing that, by the time you've through a week of doing that, you're tired of that, you're going to want to move on to the second one. I just going to promise you that. But if you're a little timid, just play uh, student, gather information. What do you mean by that? Trying to find your point of view. You go on campus, somebody's not, a, you're an atheist. Tell me about that. Why are you an atheist? What does atheism mean? What does it entail? I don't want to change your mind. I just want to hear what you think. I learned a lot about Jainism on the airplane yesterday. Some I already knew. I got more information. Why? I'm drawing him out. Drawing him out. And uh, then you might want to say, plan on spending another few weeks just asking the first and second question. So if people are offering their point of view, you're not going to take exception with them. You're not going to advance Christianity. You're just going to ask for their reasons. How'd you come to that conclusion? And all this time, you are getting used to engaging and using your questions, and there's no threat to you. Well, what do you believe? Well, I don't want to talk about that right now. I'm just interested in your point of view. Because even if they ask you what do you believe and you get into what you believe, then you're making claims and they may challenge you at a time when you're not ready for that. So just let that go for a little while. I mean, if you want to, you can. I'm just, what I'm trying to show you is that you can ease into this no matter where you're at in the process to make it easy for you. And as you ease into it, you're going to find out something surprising. First, how easy it is. Second, how relaxed you can be in these conversations. Third, you're going to be amazed at how little the other side knows. Now, they may be really smart, and you can run into people who actually know a lot, but when you start asking for their point of view and the reasons for it, you're going to be amazed at how poor the rationale turns out to be. This Jane told me yesterday, what did he say when I said, why do you think it's true? He said, I just believe it. I just believe it. That was it. So these are all going to be realizations. And one other thing that you might find out is this thing that you used to dread, engagement for the kingdom, could turn out to be something that you start enjoying, that you start looking forward to. And when you do that on a regular basis, this becomes a way of life. You are going to make a massive impact for the kingdom. I promise you. This could be a game changer. Let me pray for you. Father, thank you for these dear, good, wonderful, note-taking, alert, energetic people who love you. Thank you that I get to stand here and feed them a meal that will help them bear fruit that I ask would remain in their lives, Father. 
I pray that they take this information and pay it forward in the lives of others and that they become generous, gracious, winsome, and attractive ambassadors for Jesus Christ. Lord, we need you to be able to do this effectively. I ask for your Holy Spirit's help in my life and in the lives of everyone here to be effective for Christ's sake and in his name.